Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Well, here we go, Eric. Oh, man, I'm excited. I am just so excited. Yeah, I feel like this is your buddy, and this is my chance to get to know your buddy, who you speak so highly of. And we've, I've, I've, I've had a couple conversations with him, but it's those big groups and a loud, noisy bar, and I just can't wait to, to get to know this gentleman. Uh, I also want to say it is ridiculous for me to call him my buddy. I, I'm going to because it just feels good to say he's my buddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see how uh, if that's any re- if that's real after this interview starts to to go on for a little bit. But I love him, and uh, I'm just happy to be able to talk to him. And I also want to thank uh, Coach Miller for letting us talk to him because besides just wanting them to talk to him because of what he means to Indiana basketball and where he is and his position as assistant coach here in Indiana and, and has been since, since coach Miller came to town, what's going on in the world right now. Uh, he seems like the perfect person for us to talk to so that we can talk basketball, but also not forget the bigger picture of what's going on in the world. Yeah. We hope that a seismic change in the society is underfoot and we're a basketball podcast and that's what we're about. But right now at this time and place, uh, I know you and I have both been doing a lot of listening. We were, uh, we were trying to figure out what we should be doing last week when we, we stumbled through an interview. But I think this is a wonderful opportunity for all of us to, to educate, to get educated on, on, you know, stuff we didn't know we didn't know. So we'll see where that goes. And I think, it's just a, a time where the world of sports and any world really is not a pure escape anymore. And I think we're all going to be a lot better off in a long run because the, the lines are getting blurred right now. With that said, let's get right to it because uh, I got a feeling it's going to be a long one. But, you know, what oh. we didn't mention is that we're powered by... You can't hear it. it. It started, but then when you started asking me if it was cutting out, it started to cut out. God, the Zoom. Zoom does not like the, the pig siren call, much like our audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe our audience has been talking to the programmers at Zoom. Uh, <laughs> Pigs, but pigs.com. At, but at least, at least we don't cut out when we mention that people don't miss out on their chance to own a piece of Hoosier history by going to collegegradshop.com forward slash hysterics. Forward slash. Sounds- forward slash you heard all that right that came through wait if i do this are people seeing it backwards or are they seeing it correctly by people you mean me the only other person on the zoom with you i'm seeing it backwards what you're doing yeah you have to go the other way other way yes that's forward 
to my point of view. Yes. That's backward. Yeah. Don't do X. That no. won't get you there. That you you won't get beautiful glasses made of frosted Indiana logos from years past that way. No. I have completed my move, and the only glasses that I'm using to drink beverages out of are those four glasses. They are incredible. They're really classy. I love them. All right. Now let's get to the Let's interview. get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we've got a good one for you here today. Uh, not a player, a coach. One of our own coaches. Eric, go ahead. Give him the details. Oh, I am so excited to be able to do this introduction for, for multiple reasons. But hailing from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he attended Episcopal Academy, and became first team all Philadelphia before attending St. Joseph's University, where he led the Hawks to an Atlantic 10 title his junior year and a berth in the NCAA tournament. He was all Atlantic 10 as a senior at St. Joseph's and inducted into the St. Joe's Hall of Fame. His senior year, by the way, he averaged 14.6 points, 6.1 assists, 2.1 steals, and 3.3 rebounds, which makes me want to ask him if he's got a year of eligibility left. We could use those stats. He then started his coaching career at Coppin State for two years before he found a home at UMass with John Calipari, where for seven seasons he was the assistant coach, included a trip to the Final Four in 1996 and helped coach and recruit great players like Marcus Camby and many others. After that, he took over as the head coach of UMass, where he set a record at UMass for most wins by a first-year head coach, two NCAA tournaments and an NIT after that. Then returned home where he became the head coach at Drexel for 15 years, which is just unheard of in modern day college basketball. One of my favorite things about his time at Drexel, he beat the shit out of Louisville in 2010-11 <laughs> season, which we love, which was the first ever loss for Louisville at the Yum Center. He's the first coach in Drexel history to beat three Philly Big Five teams in one season. He had 29 wins, which was a school record in 2011-2012. The all-time winning is coach in Drexel history. 20 or more wins three times. Four times he was named Colonial Athletic Association Coach of the Year, NABC District Coach of the Year, 331 career wins, over 30 years of coaching, and only four stops in that coaching career, which in today's basketball is pretty amazing, over 30 years and only four stops. And his biggest achievement, of course, before becoming – well, of course, he became assistant coach at Indiana University, but his biggest accomplishment was he led my team to a championship game appearance in the first Archie Miller Victor Oladipo Fantasy Camp experience. Please welcome the man, Coach Bruiser Flint. <laughs> What's up, guys? <laughs> I had to coach my butt off to have you on my team to make it to the final, that's for sure. <laughs> Certainly your most difficult coaching job of all time. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> so, Coach, when you hear quickly all those, uh, when I just kind of list your career in front of you, does one thing in that group just stand out to you as just one thing that you're most proud of? Well, I mean, you go into the Final Four, although I wasn't the head coach, I was the assistant. I mean, you know, that's the ultimate pinnacle. We didn't win a national championship, but, uh, you know, we had a 25-game win streak. We we went to the final four it was it was just a special year uh, uh, and you know the guys that you go through that with you, you stay connected with we had a zoom uh, it's been a little while now but all the UMass guys we got on it uh you know Cal 
Philly. I mean, we all the, all the guys who went to the Final Four, mostly every player was on there. You know, guys who played for me there, guys who played for Cal. So you you uh, and, and you start telling stories. I mean, that's the biggest thing. You start telling stories. But I would say of all, I'd say I, I would say from from my coaching, but but uh, I would say going to the Final Four. But you know, the biggest thing about coaching is that uh, you just like the the relationship you build with the guys and seeing those guys grow up. And you know, I've been in it for a long time. You know, my 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 guys got kids in college and things like that now and to see them have success and you know how far some of them came and then to see their kids, you know, doing the same things, not necessarily in athletics. And uh, so, you know, that, I, I think that's the biggest thing of being a coach. But in terms of strictly basketball, you know, just get to the final four. We've been doing a few of these since uh, things went crazy with COVID-19. And so we've been checking with how people have been reorganizing their day-to-day lives, but things have, have taken actually even a turn for the worse in the last couple of weeks uh, with the death of George Floyd. And we would be remiss if we weren't asking you as two white guys who don't know what the hell they're talking about, what these last couple of weeks have been like and, and you know, how you and the team are dealing now with one crisis on top of another. Well, I think Arch did a great job. Uh, you know, we immediately had a Zoom with the entire team. Uh, Ray Thompson, his dad organized a couple of the protests in Minneapolis, and uh, he told his story about going out and being a little afraid and being in the, being in the fray a little bit. Uh, then we came out with the everybody agreed that you know we, let's try to do something. We came out with the PSA uh, where all the guys got on it. I mean. Uh, you know, it's a tough time. I've, I'm, I'm old, so I've seen some of this stuff before. Uh, and uh, it's a little different this time, I will say. Uh, I think the color of the protest is a little different. Uh, uh, I think at this time, uh, people are, can really, really, there's no distraction from it. You know what I mean? This is what's going on. I think that'll make a huge difference. Uh, but we talked about a lot of things on the Zoom as a team. Uh, talked about the guys and, and, and voting. Uh, how important that is, and uh, uh, I've been through some things in my life that you know I, I sort of uh, you know talk to the team about, uh, and uh, you know, this is this is the times. I mean, I, I I I like to see what's going on, the advocacy and, and the unity. I don't like to see some of the other stuff that went on with it, uh, but I hope this brings some change to it. Uh, I hope it awakens us uh, to some of the things that's important. I would say myself. Uh, I think voting is going to become much more important for the younger people. I, I'll be honest with you. I didn't, I didn't vote till Clinton and I probably was almost 30 years old was the first time I ever voted. And, uh, but I think they'll pay a little bit more attention to it because I think that that's where you can have your value and make a lot of changes over, over time, uh, putting the right people that you want to see in offices who make decisions and do all those things like that. And I think the young people that they are more on top of that than myself, when I was growing up, and they paid way more attention to it, uh, with social media, I think they've done a good job of being really good advocates and putting their message out there. So uh, in that reason, you know, we, we never want to have a situation like this. Uh, I have a lot of friends that are um, uh, uh, in law enforcement, a lot of guys I grew up with. Guys who I never thought would ever be in law enforcement. <laughs> <laughs> guys that maybe were on the other side. They got in law enforcement. I was like, they let you be, you let, they let you be in, <laughs> are you kidding me? Right. But so I go a long way back. One of my, my biggest mentors growing up was a police officer. Uh, the police athletic league was huge in Philadelphia. 
and uh, uh, Mr. Earl Harris, he put me in situations as his representatives of his, uh, of his pal uh, to take me to banquets, do all those things like that. He took me to my first banquet. It was the first time I ever saw more than one spoon on the table or more than, wow. more than one fork. And he and my dad sort of pointed out the utensils I'm supposed to be using because I was up in front. And uh, so they would just put their finger next to it. So I, I wasn't up there embarrassing myself. As we have, you know what I mean? So, but, I mean, but you look back now and you say, wow, because you know, I didn't grow up that way. You know what I mean? That one, we had a knife, we had a, we had a, we had a knife and fork. We didn't even really had that many spoons, you know what I mean? So that's how you ate. So, uh, but he put me in a, a, some great situations to meet some great people at a younger age. Uh, so you know, I have a lot of respect uh, for those people. They played some uh, important role in my life. Uh, but, you know, with this year, you know, we, we have to, to spotlight it. I hope the lessons that we learn continue. Uh, for us to make a change, you got to keep at it. You know what I mean? We can't just drop this thing. We got to keep at it. Guys got to keep at it. Uh, all, the, all the other young folks got to keep at it. That's how you make change at it. Well, I, just one follow-up on that. Have you and Coach Miller or the university discussed about taking voting day off, as is being floated out in college circles right now, so everybody can get out there? Not necessarily. I know through my career as a coach, I, I got my guys to sign up. You know, I didn't make a big deal of it. Like, yo, you, you sign up to vote? No, because, you know, around Drexel and even in UMass, they had all these places where you could go. People were just walking up. You should, you should learn, you should vote, doing those things like that. So I think I was, you know, I, I didn't look at it like you just, I said, hey, guys, go, go sign up to be able to vote. Uh, so, uh, uh, we haven't really discussed that, but I, I, I'm sure when it comes around and we, we get back into the voting again, uh, that uh, the archer sit down and talk to the players about it because that was one of the things we actually talked about and uh, being in, more involved in your lives and those things like that. Uh, so I, I, I think we will do it, uh, and I, I think he'll make a, a point, and I think the university will make a point. Uh, higher education plays a big part in this stuff. That's why we're here. They're here to educate you. So let's educate you on being the, the importance of voting. So, uh, so hopefully, uh, but I think, I, I think it will happen. Great. So, Brew, one of the things that, that you hear about, especially from the white person perspective right now, is listen, just stop talking so much and listen. Like understand, try to put yourself as much as you can, which is impossible, into the shoes of African-American people growing up in this country. So what I want to ask you is, I know how I felt when I heard the news of George Floyd, but you know, it can never be as personal to me as I'm sure it is to you. When you first heard the news of that, what did, what did it do to you? What did you feel when you heard it? Well, I think the biggest thing for me growing up, because I've seen stuff like, I've heard about stuff, the visual. I mean, the visual is unbelievable when you watch it. And uh, uh, like I said, I have a lot of friends in law enforcement. I talk to them like, Yo, what's going on? Like, why, why did, we get it, did it get to that point? Uh, and uh, when you watch it, I mean, it stuns you. you. You saw literally a guy just pretty much get killed in front of you. Mm -hmm. And he's almost begging for his life. I mean, that's, 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 a, that's, that's one hell of a visual right there. So you look at it and you say, man, you know, how could this, how could this happen? And uh, I think that's the biggest thing for me uh, um, is that, you know, you saw a guy pretty much get killed. Uh, we talked a little bit on the Zoom because Arch talked about the first time he sort of experienced this was Rodney King, you know what I mean? And uh, 
But Rodney King didn't die. You know what I mean? Rodney King didn't die. And I think some of the things that are happening that you visually see people get shot, get killed, those things like that, that's a little bit different than reading about it or somebody just talking about it. You're actually seeing it. I think the visual uh, becomes a lot more, uh, uh, I don't want to say dramatic, it, it, it becomes a thing that really makes you hit home because you really are seeing it out front. And I think that's the thing that sort of took me back a little bit. Did you, um, you talked a little bit about that you've seen some things growing up in your life. I think that Ward and I have talked about this off, off air. White people, we take it for granted. We just take it for granted. It comes, like Rodney King was a big deal. And then a few weeks later, we forgot about it. And we moved on, white people, with our lives. Um, this time does feel a little different right now. I know we're still within this like couple week window. But I do think it's helpful. You know, you're meaningful to us, obviously, because you're the coach of Indiana. We've gotten to know you. We genuinely really like you. You mean a lot to the Indiana fans. As you know, basketball means so much and sports can really be helpful in these times. I think it's helpful for us to hear some of the stuff you went through. What, what sticks out to you thinking back to your childhood? I mean, Philadelphia was a tough place, period. I told the guys, I told the guys about Frank Rizzo, right? Okay. And I, they didn't know about Frank Rizzo. Then the next day they took his statue down in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the first things about Frank Rizzo, and I probably, this was in the 70s, and he had, you know, he had the, the end of the marriage coming up, but they talked about his history. And I remember the signs in Philadelphia that said, hey, Rizzo, this is not Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. So you guys understood that. I actually told the guys, I got to look that up, because I don't think y'all really, you know. They didn't know. Together. They well, didn't know. They didn't put it together. But those are signs that went around in Philadelphia back in the 70s. You know what I mean? So, and I was actually just a little kid back then. And I was like, I, I remember that. And I know a lot of people in Philadelphia look at Frank Rizzo as an iconic politician in his day. And I know a lot of people, they like him. Black people, they, they, they like Frank Rizzo, but he was rough. And then back then, it was the ultimate police brutality in the city of Philadelphia. I mean, it was bad. Uh, it wasn't a lot of black cops and the, uh, the thing. So they've come a long way in, t- in terms of that. But Rizzo was one of the things that that's one of the first things they went after. It. So today, the next day, I had a lot of guys text me, yo, they taking that guy you're talking about. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I was like, yo, this guy, it was, it was a little deep back there. Frank Rizzo had some history now. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of tough. But, uh, you know, I had probably had two instances in my life in which uh, one was a little bit more uh, traumatic for me than another. Uh, one time I, I just said to myself, come on, man, seriously, you know, but, and those are the things you go, you go through sometimes emotionally. One of them was, uh, I was a junior in high school and uh, at my high, I went to private school and uh, it was in an all white neighborhood, actually bordered St. Joe's where I went to college right across the street from my high school. So it bordered, but you had to go into the, what they call the suburban part of the city to, to go to my high school. And I went to my high school from sixth grade to 12th grade. So I wasn't a newbie, you know what I mean? I, I wasn't, but I'm a junior. And then my high school to go, when I caught public transportation, they had a fence, a hole in the fence that everybody who caught public transportation went through this fence every day to go to school. I went through this from, from the sixth grade till I graduated. I went through this fence with a hole in it to get to my school. So <laughs> I got a high school, I got a game and uh, I get on the bus 
I get off the bus. I walk up the, the hill, going through the fence. I get there, you know what I mean? Like, you know, come on out. Now, I have on a letterman's jacket with my high school on it. Episcopal cat with my name, Episcopal basketball, right? White leather sleeves, blue wool. You know how letter, you know, back, you know how. Yeah. Love that thing. Biggest day. Guy says, where you going? We we talking about where I'm going. I got a jacket on that pretty much tells you where I'm going, right? So I had my bag because it was a game. I had my bag, and see, we 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 had to wash our own uniforms back then. You probably know about that. These kids don't know about that now. They you took your uniform home and you washed it. You know, so when you came to the game, you had your uniform, your sneakers, everything, your warm up. Yeah. You had all that stuff. You had to wash it back then. So they opened up my bag, and the guy kept asking me where I was going. I was like, dude, you. You, you watching my jersey? You know what I mean? Like, you right. see, I'm, I'm going to a game. And it really, one, I was pissed off because I was going to be late. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then it goes back to the whole listening. Why are you late? The cop stopped me at the, at the fence. And people looking at me like, come on, man. That's not why you're late. Hmm. Right? right? So, hmm. but they, they held me there for about 15 minutes. You know what I mean? You know, I had no idea. You know, this is the 80. Yeah, you were wearing your ID. Yeah, yeah, I'm wearing my ID. It's not like you got ID. It's not like today where they ask you to me. I got my ID on. Like, dude, <laughs> you see what I'm wearing? That's where I'm going. You know, what do you think? And plus, I knew you had to see a million kids come through this fence. Nice. It's been holding this fence for like seven years. <laughs> I'm not the first person to ever go through the fence. And, and that right there, I just was so pissed. Because then you look at it and say, you're only stopping me because I'm black. Right. That's the only reason why. I got all this stuff on and talked about where I went. I didn't got to say it. It's on me. And you still stopped me. And that one right there just, you know, just totally just pissed me off about, you know what I mean? You know some places that, you know, they just look at you differently. Was that yeah. the first time in your life where you realized everything you heard about black, white in this country it applied to you now? Was that like the, because you were pretty old at that point in, in high school. Yeah, I was in high school, but you know, when you go to an all-white school, one of the things you realize sometimes is you're the only black in the class. Mm -hmm. Okay? So that's that's the other eye-opener. And I was coming from inner city, and I'm going to the suburbs. That's the other eye-opener. I'll be honest with you, I went to a school that's very prominent. So when I got there as a sixth grader, I used to catch the bus and go, and you just see people come in my school in limousines, drop them off. So for me, that was like, oh, wow. You know what I mean? So I was like, oh, wow, that's a little bit different. They don't drop people off in limousines in my neighborhood, right? <laughs> but, but I mean, so you learn those things and being the only black in the class and guys ask you certain questions, got in a couple fights, you know what I mean? Because somebody took it the wrong way, all right? It's funny, on our 25th, um, uh, High school reunion. Uh, was it twenty fifth or thirtieth? Twenty. Uh, I think it might have been the thirtieth high school reunion, right? I go back, and a lot of guys talked about the fight. Oh, really? About it because that they stopped messing with me after the fight. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we better leave this guy alone because he's it's a little bit different. So they laughed and they were like, "Okay, we won't be picking on this guy right here." I know he's a little small, but this one, this was a little different. What he just did a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we still laughed about, you know, 30 years later, you know, because some of the guys who I had went through six all the way through 12th with, they were there. 
And I did that in like eighth grade. So they were always, you know, they guys were there. So they talked about, I was laughing so hard. I said, I can't believe you guys remember that. But that was one of the things you talk about. But the eye opener is, okay, I'm the only one in here. People look at you differently. Mm -hmm. They ask you questions that, you know what? They pick you apart a little bit. You necessarily can't always be, be yourself because now you're looking around saying, well, what are they going to say about me? What are they going to do? You know what I mean? What, what do these guys really, really, really feel about me being in here and doing this? So you get tested. You know what I mean? You get tested and uh, it's, it's a tough feeling at times. Uh, but I always say it, I really learned from it. You know, I never, ne never let it intimidate me. You know what I mean? That's one of the things. And when I went in there and Cal used to always say this to me all the time, he said, I can take you anywhere. It doesn't matter. I said, I've been going through this for a long time. You know what I mean? In the positions that I've been in as a person, I've been the only black in the room a lot. So I get that, okay? But I also, too, I'm not going to change myself. Right. I'm going to be who I am. So that's one of the things I've learned, you know, I, I've learned throughout the years. And being in that classroom, doing that. But I had a lot of, I had some, I mean, you grow up where I grew up, but in the gangs in my neighborhood was really bad. So you always had some confrontations with the police. One, because if you was on the corner, they tell you, get off the corner. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And this is before you had to drive. We had drive-bys, but people survived drive-bys back then. This is before they came and the drive-bys started killing six or seven people who were standing on the corner. So cop, cops get on you, and if you said something back, though, they got out that car. And don't let them get out of that car. They pull that blackjack. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, they came at you. So you grew up that way. But my most traumatic incident came when I was an assistant at UMass. And uh, I was 24. And back then, they didn't let you uh, always uh, rent cars because you weren't old enough. Right. right. You had to be 25. Yeah, that was 25, a big deal. Right. So Cal used to always tell me, look, man, just perception. When you go rent a car, rent a nice one. OK? So Enterprise. Rent me cars and they had these Cadillacs back then, the small Coupe de Ville's, right? <laughs> I used to rent them, right? So, but you know, when I go home to Philly, I stayed at my mom's. I didn't stay in a hotel. So I go home, I got the car. And I, you, know, you know, I've been home a couple of times. You know, I mean, it's not like it's, I'm not used to being home. But, you know, boys on the corner, I pull up, stop. What's up? You know what I mean? You know, slap hand, you know, what's going on with the fellas? They all with my gear. You know what I mean? All those things, all the stuff they do, you know, they on the corner, they hanging out. So uh, my mom lived on the parkway. My mom's street was on the, like next to a parkway. So there was no uh, parking spots on the street. So I pull off around the corner to park on the parkway, which most people do in the neighborhood. Man, all of a sudden, ring, ring, ring. I mean, it must've been 10 cop cars. And Benny, one time it was an incident, and Ben Sanders asked me, did you, did you ever uh, experience anything like this? And I gave him, put your hands out the window. Because that's what you got, that's what I got. So they told me to turn off the car, put my hands out the window, and drop the keys on the ground. So then, now it's like seven or eight cop cars now. And I'm sort of dressed. I had this really long, you know, this, is, this is, you know, this is back in the ladies, had this long black leather jacket on, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm you know what I mean? I'm, you know, I ain't gonna lie, I'm, I'm hanging out a little bit, right? <laughs> so they, they literally came, opened the door, made me lay on the ground. So 
I'm like, what's the deal? So this is the thing that gets you in these types of situations. So they check me, they get my ID, they pick my ID, they go back to the car. What saved me was it was one of the cops, because now at this time, a lot of the cops have gotten out of their cars. Nobody drew, uh, uh, drew their gun or anything like that. And this one cop says to me, didn't you play at St. Joe's? I said, yeah, and he told me to get up because I was laying on the ground. So I brushed myself off and everything like this. And so he said, what are you doing now? And I told, I coach, you know, I'm a college coach at Massachusetts. He's like, oh, okay, okay. So the cop who took my ID comes back. And at this time, I had never changed my ID from Philadelphia. I still had a Pennsylvania driver's license. So the address that I had was a hundred yards, not even a hundred yards around the corner. And the cop asked me, what are you doing here? And I'm like, seriously? Like, yo, you see my address on the, on the identification, <laughs> right? And, and I'm like, and so the one guy who actually stepped up and told me to get off the ground says, ah, he's, he's okay, he's cool, right? And he sort of explained it to me. He said, hey, uh, you know, you live, you know, you're, 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 this, this neighborhood is hot, drugs. And when you stopped at the corner, we had it on surveillance. Mm. So we're not knowing, you know, you got a nice car right there. And I'm like, that's when you start to think, I can't drive a nice car. Right. You know what I mean? Like, because I pull up on the corner and say, what's up to my boys? Like, I can't, I, I got to be doing something from a drug transaction or something like that. And that opens your mind a little bit. And I got stopped a couple of times driving while, you know, boys, we call driving while black. And then one time Cal was actually in the car with me. He couldn't believe what the cop had actually was saying. We talked about this the other day, right? Because he went on a webinar and talked about it. And he said, you know, I never believed this stuff until a couple of times I hung out with Bruiser. And I was like, oh, wow, this thing is really real. Then what happens? Wow. One time I was driving his car and we were coming back from New York. And it was late at night and they pulled us over. And Cal was actually laying and laying down under the seat and I was driving and uh, the cop pulled me over and he knew, you know, we wasn't speeding. And, uh, and he actually explained when Castle, the guy said, where you coming from? I told him where we were coming from New York. And, da, 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 da. and the guy said, you know, this is a heavily traveled uh, drug uh, area. And Cal got up and said, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's, and again, I'm dressed. Right. You know what I mean? I'm, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm dressed. I sort of looked apart. I, I could have had a nice car. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, right. you can't look in there and say he doesn't have a nice car. Can't have a nice car. I'm dressed like you can have a nice car. And they pull it over. And that was one of the first times Cal was like, "Yo, did this happen a lot?" I was like, "Listen, man. You know, this is the things you go through. You know what I mean? This is what you know the the whole perception thing or uh, the stereotypes. Those are the things that 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 piss you off." Uh, does it does it stay with you, Brew, to this day? Like, if you're driving in uh, Bloomington and you hear a cop car behind you, what happens inside you the second you hear or see the sirens, even before you know who they're there for? What happens inside you? One of the things I've learned from my friends who are in law enforcement is they follow rules, bro. Because if you don't, we've been taught a certain way. I had a I had an incident at Drexel where one of my kids got into it with. One of the campus police now, when you live in the city, even the campus cops, they carry guns. Okay, so, uh, and they they roughed my kid up a little bit. So I had a couple of my boys come in and talk to the team and they talked about how 
when they tell you to get on the ground, get on the ground because their job is to get you on the ground. Right. You know what I mean? And these are, these are my friends telling my team this, you know what I mean? Like, so one of the things my guys that I've done, they like, bro, just, they ask you for your license and registration, give it to them. You never know, you just follow the rules of what they're saying. All right, don't get into a verbal confrontation because that's when things get, that's when things just get to get ticked off. So I've actually always followed that. You know what I mean? So, uh, so somebody pulls me over, they, here, here, I don't really say anything. They ask me, you know, you, you're going fast or whatever they pulled me over for. I answer the question and I keep on going because I know what can happen. And my friends have tell me, have told me, this could happen. This could happen to you. You know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, so I just, I just, I just try to follow what they, and I know they're telling me this to make sure that I don't get in any, I don't put myself in any danger. Uh, because we, with my friends, <laughs> we laugh about, because we're so close about being police officers and things like that. And one of the things they always say, you watch too many cop shows. Would you want me to shoot them in the leg and they drop their gun? That's not how it goes. <laughs> so they laugh about that a little bit. You understand what I'm saying? But when they get serious, I listen to them. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things. You want to keep yourself out of danger? Just just listen to what the guy got to say. Go about your business. It might, it might piss you off, but I'm going to tell you what, you'll stay out of trouble. And that's one of the things that they, 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 they hammered into me. And, uh, and I always listen to that. It, it certainly takes on a much more importance for you and for anyone who's black growing up in America. I mean, I got pulled over for uh, about four weeks ago. I got pulled over. The cop said, and, and I, I didn't understand why I was being pulled over. I wasn't speeding, didn't have a license that was out or anything. And the cop came over and he said, uh, you were, you know what hands-free is? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, you were on your phone. And I wasn't. I was actually on the on a phone call using Bluetooth. You know, I was just on a phone call, but I wasn't holding my phone. I had my wallet in my hand. I just picked up my wallet for a second and I argued with him. I like got into it with him and it, it never even occurred to me, but I've thought about this since. I've thought about it since, Bru. It never occurred to me that like, oh, this could escalate into like him taking me out. But but as I've thought about in the in the wake of George Floyd and listening to people, listening to your stories, I was, a black person doing that it takes on a whole other meaning for you like you would flash back to those conversations with your friends that are police officers like for me I was like what's this guy gonna do like he's just a piece of crap who's like just trying to get money for the city but you can't I mean I know it's such a minor thing but it just shows the difference between the privilege of being a white guy not having to worry about that and if you were a black guy you would have to worry I do, I do wonder, Coach, you know, you came from, from the East Coast, and that's where you grew up, that's where you played, uh, that's where you began your coaching career, and then you get dropped in the middle of small, <laughs> small town Indiana, right? And I think, you know, Bloomington, it's, it's, it's a college town. I think there's, there's a lot more progression there, maybe in other parts of, of a state that's not always the most open-minded, and I wonder what kind of adjustment, if any, you've had to make since you got there. And is that something you have to talk to the players about, maybe who are coming from a different state or even a bigger city like Indianapolis on like, this is how it works here? 
Um, I, I, I wouldn't say I, I haven't really had to make any adjustments. I'm a, you know, I'm a 54, be 55 year old person. So I've experienced some things. Uh, um, uh, you know, it was a, it was a huge change for me to come from. I've never been anywhere but the East Coast to get dropped into the Midwest. I think one of the things that have, that got me a little bit about the Midwest is uh, the whole opi opioid thing and the drugs and how it affects this, the, the things that go on here. You know, when you live in the inner city, you're used to that stuff. You know, you listen to news to, but I, I think that's been probably the biggest thing that has, has surprised me. And, uh, but, you know, I talked to our guys about how you're supposed to, you know, you know, what to expect at times. Um, you get a little, uh, I would say, I want to say overconfident, but you get a little comfortable because, you know, they know you because you're a player. You know what I mean? So, uh, and it's, it's a lot different than when I was growing up. So, uh, but, uh, you know, those, you know I, I, I just want to let those guys, I want them to enjoy themselves. You don't want to scare them half to death. Uh, but there's some subtle things that you got to watch out for. You know what I mean? You do. And, uh, and some of them guys, they talk to me, they've been living here their whole lives. You know I mean, we got a lot of players from Indiana. Uh, but, uh, and, but I think there's, it's all about your situation that you come from. Like I said, I was in private school from sixth to 12th grade. So being around a whole bunch of, uh, of white people that didn't bother, that doesn't bother me. I've been around them my whole life. Uh, uh, you know, I, I understand what sometimes you have to go through. So, uh, but you know, it's just some subtle things that you talk to the guys about, but you want them to enjoy your college experience. That's why you're here. You're here to get educated. Sometimes you get educated in life as you do as much as in terms of your books. So that's what, that's, that's what going to college is all about, maturing. So you're going to experience some different things because the next part of your life, that's it. You know what I mean? The cheering is going to be going a little bit. Uh, you know, you got to go and you got to be more responsible for yourself. So those are the things you have, you have to, to, to learn throughout your college years. And, uh, and so that's all I wanted to do. So if they ever have an issue, they come and talk to me. We talk about it. Uh, but I'm not pushing any, I'm pushing anything on them in that way. If I see them doing a certain things, I'll pull them to the side. We'll have one of those life talks. That's the problem. That's what you're supposed to do as a coach. You know what I mean? You're supposed to help them get along with their lives so they can become productive people and, and be able to do the thing. That's, that's what the college experience is all about. It's also, I mean, we talked a little bit, I mentioned it before, but sports, when it comes to race relations, I mean, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, which is a, a big African-American population. And I grew up playing basketball. I was surrounded with black people my whole life from the time I was on my first team. So that was never a thing, but I can understand, you know, separation breeds contempt. If you grow up just around white people and you're never exposed to a black person, you think they're different, you know? And same thing like you, if you grew up, just being around black people and then you're the only black person in a group of white people it's a hard thing to to adjust to sports does bring people together in a way that um should be celebrated you know yeah. i think that's the thing that people don't realize about sports uh in a lot of ways and one of the things i like about the even the, the pros they're talking about they understand that their 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 teammates don't listen you know what I mean? One thing I learned about going to Episcopal, because I wasn't the only black kid that went to the school, was I found out there was a lot of black people that was different from me. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was like, yo, you, you don't do that? You know, you know what I mean? It's, you know what I mean? I, I'll be honest with you. That, that, to me, was a big thing, too. Like, you know, you know, 
I didn't know many affluent black people other than watching them on TV play some sport. Now all of a sudden I got this black kid in me and he's pulling up in the Mercedes. (laughs) Where you come from? You're not really talking the same language. So you learn that too. You know what I mean? So, but uh, 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 I think sports, when it comes down to it, the bond that you get with those guys uh, are um, lifelong. You know what I mean? Like you're going to, you're going to always have those friends. Like I said, when I go back to my 30th uh, anniversary, when I went back for my 30th uh, high school reunion, so we talked and we talked about us being the guys who I was with during the reunion was all the guys I played either football or basketball with. That's that. Those were the guys I really connected with. So, and we had a different type of bond. It just wasn't school. Like we battled, you know what I mean? We, 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 we together doing, we talked about old games. We talked about how they said my high school coach, let me shoot every ball. You know what I mean? All those things like that. <laughs> I said to him, hey, he wanted to win. He was smart. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I mean, like, that bond goes way back. And I, I actually, uh, a lot of guys that I actually went to high school with have helped me with some things uh, along the way, uh, especially when I moved back to go to, dr- to, to work at Drexel. And they were still in the area. And them guys, you know, they, they became politicians or businessmen. And they helped me with jobs and, and all those types of things like that. But that's what sports does for you. You know what I mean? Sports does that. You do, when, it's, when it's game time, you don't see no color. Only color you see is the color of the other team. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the only color you see. And if you do, then you're in trouble anyway. You ain't winning. Right. You understand what I mean? You should only see the color of the other jerseys. Right? But your color, you shouldn't see any. You should be united and be together. Uh, so, and I think that's when sports gives you a different opportunity. I know when I was at, uh, I, I used them all the way through my career. And a sports psychologist, uh, Dr. Joe Carr, used to come in and do the stuff with our teams. Now, you know, I'm a black coach. We got most of the black players, but we had some white players too. And uh, we would have uh, some round tables and their experience is a little bit different because they were the only ones. You know what I mean? Now, uh, so we would talk about those things in the meetings. You know, how different it is in front of me. They're the only one that's traveling. Now, the general population at the school eased it for them because most of the time that was it but and again in a a team setting all right it was a little bit different for them it was you know they weren't used to it uh, a lot of times and and they would talk about that so we all have our experiences but I think sports helps wipe a lot of that stuff away you know what I mean Uh, and because we're all together common by you become a friendship I I always felt as though um you, everybody should get to know each other. And that was one of the reasons why I did the stuff that I did, because now you, I always felt as though from my own standpoint as a coach, it helped me coach the players differently. I learned things about them that I might not necessarily have learned. And, you know, when you're a coach, you're a little bit of a dictator. So, you know what I mean? It's like my way or the highway. But I always say, I always felt as though in those sessions, I learned things about kids that really helped me coach them to their highest potential. So I think that's one of the things that in sports you can learn to do, whether you're a player or a coach. You know what I mean? Get to know everybody and what goes on. You, it's a lot of similarities sometimes, and whether it's family, how you know how you you know you know how, how you feel about things. So I think with sports, when you sit in those arenas and you're that that you're that way, you got to get to know each other. That's what makes a great team. Mm-hmm. But everybody knows each other and they're bonding to go to, to do the same things out there on the floor. And there is no color. The only color is we're playing Purdue and they got on black jerseys tonight. That's the only color you're worrying about. 
So I think that's one of the things that, that sports sort of brings it, brings you together in that way. Well, and I think for somebody, I grew up in a small, small white town in Northern Indiana, but I think was part of one of the very first generations that like Calbert Chaney was my favorite all time player. Uh, you know, my, my white friends and I would pass around the, the NWA tape and we'd, we'd go see boys in the hood. So why we didn't have the interaction and, and I wouldn't to a large degree till I got to Bloomington and then to LA, but at least there was like a sympathy and, and hopefully an empathy, empathy starting to be put out there in mass media that I don't think my parents' generation had any kind of access to, to lay the groundwork of, you know, even now younger kids today, obviously, where it's like, well, well how can we not have any, any sympathy and, and feel like we can just sit on the sidelines and not help, you know, those who have been our heroes growing up and I, I sort of feel like it's, oh, people be like, well, sports turns, you know, Purdue and IU fans kind of like, you know, don't like each other. Well, not really. That actually ends up being pretty superficial. Pretty deep over here. <laughs> pretty deep over here. I don't care what color they are. I just hate them all. <laughs> uh, but when you think about like when my dad was born, you, there was absolutely... Uh, no desegregation in sports, in school, uh, in popular culture and music. Like the, the groundwork has been laid over the last 50, 60 years now for like, okay, we, we kind of got to all get off our ass and, and realize we're on, on the same side here to make fundamental changes that have been built up since this country got started. So I, I think it's so helpful for me to to really hear explicitly over these last couple of weeks your experiences and just get get less passive about the whole thing because we've always grown up like celebrating and enjoying black culture or black athletes but realizing that's not good enough we we need to do something to change the system that we've reaped the benefits of since we were born without even realizing it we, uh, you know, the stages of learning, first is silence, second is listening. You really want to learn something, be quiet first, and then listen to what the person is saying. And I think that's one of the messages that the people are putting out today. Listen to us, you know what I mean? We're not just, we're not just saying it just to say it. Um, my, the guy who actually fired me, the former athletic director, Eric Zama, who's a world-renowned, uh, uh, neuropsychologist. Uh, we played at Memphis and um, Cal was the coach at Memphis at the time. So I took everybody to the uh, uh, Civil Rights Museum, uh, the hotel. And uh, uh, Eric grew up in Germany and uh, uh, unbelievably smart guy, GME genius type guy. guy. And I used to get on him because I didn't think he knew anything about sports, but, uh, <laughs> but he was my boss. So. <laughs> So I take him to, and you know, Eric got like 55 degrees. I mean, he's, you know, highly intelligent guy. And he said, after we went through the, the, the museum and it was just me and him, we were just hanging out. And he said, I'll be honest with you. He says, I never thought it was ever, I never grow up here. I didn't think it was like this. Hmm. Right. He says, this is one of the most emotional things that he said, you know, he said to me, he said, now I see why you guys fight and sometimes why you're angry. He said that to me, right? And his guys, 
like I said, unbelievably educated, but he always, and we talk about it all the time when we talk, and I still talk to him, although he fired me, I still talk to him, and uh, he, he, he brings that up, and he actually just texted me about that the other day, wow. you know what I mean, all this stuff going on, and, uh, 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 but, uh, you know, those are the types of things, I think one of the biggest things now, like I said, I like the, the sea, the, the colors of the, uh, 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 the protests a little bit different than they've been in the past. Uh, I hope everybody gets the message of let's listen to what we need to do. And uh, uh, like I said, I think out of this, the voting is going to become, we're going to be more educated about voting and how that can make more changes and then doing those things like that. So, but uh, uh, as bad as the coronavirus has been, it's brought a focus to this thing. And I think it's going to open the eyes up of a lot of people who never really paid attention to it before. One more question on this, Brew, before we get to some basketball stuff. Um, before we got on, you know, you and I have gotten to know each other a little bit over the last year, really, almost a year now, starting with you being my coach. And one thing I said to Ward was in getting to know you, I've never met anyone who's just more comfortable in his own skin, that you just seem to be you, no matter the environment. You don't care really what's around you. It's just you're you. And then you, you talked a little bit about it before, how you know, you're comfortable being yourself and, and that came through your experience and I'm sure your upbringing. But the other day I was watching Inside the NBA came back and they had Barkley and Kenny Smith and, and Shaq kind of giving their perspective. And Barkley said something that was really um, interesting to me. He said that it's just stressful being a black man, that it's just always stressful, that yeah, you have fun, and there are times you forget about it. But then there are so many moments, little moments, not just when the police sirens start, but anything, maybe when somebody looks at you walking down the street, where there's a stress level that, that exists within black men that maybe does not exist within the average white man. Do you feel that, Brew, on a, on a kind of daily basis, that there is something pulling at you? Uh. I would actually say it sometimes you feel it that way professionally. Hmm. I don't think you get the opportunities that our white brethren get. Right. I'll be honest, I'll be honest with you with that. You know, I mean, like, when it, I don't think it's so, why did he get this job and I didn't? But, like, why don't we get the same opportunities? Why don't we get the same amount of chances? I think, I think that's one of the things. If I was to say, uh, the pressure, I would, I, I would say that that be part of it. Um, why we gotta have the Rooney Rule in NFL? Right. Like we should not be judged that way. You know what I mean? Uh, affirmative action. You know what I mean? Why? Why? Why we need that? Like if if it if it was real and we were all put on here because everybody's supposed to be treated equal, we shouldn't have those rules. But we've had to have those rules to sort of make up for all the stuff that's going on in the past. Uh, I would say, and in, in, in my uh, experiences, I would say that would be it. Now, I, mean, I told you some instances of me just walking down the street, driving, you know what I mean? Those types of things like that. Um, I think you almost become immune to that type of stuff because where you grew up at, you know what I mean? And you know it, that it happens. But as I'm going on in my life, I think the biggest pressure is, you know, like sometimes you say, why aren't you having these opportunities? You know what I mean, why the opportunities aren't the same? Why are you doing it? My, 
my credentials is just as good as his. Uh, why did why did why does it happen that way? I, I think that's one of the big things that if I was to look at and say with some pressure, then I, I would say definitely that that would be it. But we've alluded a lot to your upbringing in Philadelphia, and you certainly must be heartened at the way Philadelphia has turned out here the last couple of weeks. Uh, R.I.P. Frank Rizzo statue. <laughs> take us, take or, us, or not in peace. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Just yeah. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> um, but take us back to to the early early days and how you and the game of basketball found each other. Well, actually, my dad, uh, his second job, he ran a recreation center. So I was around a long time. I was the ball boy. You know what I mean? I, you know, I, I did everything. But, you know, so I was always always in the gym. And uh, so uh, he ran a rec. He ran probably one of the best uh, basketball leagues where we used to have ages 10, 12, 12, 14, 14, 16. Probably ran one of the best basketball leagues in, in the city of Philadelphia, rec leagues. Everybody came through what we called the Wood, Sherwood Recreation Center. Now it's called Albert Christie. Uh, but they called it, sure, we called it the Wood, Sherwood. So everybody, if you're a good player, you came through Sherwood. Mm. I don't care what section of the city that you played. <laughs> Somebody would bring you down there to play in the leagues that my dad ran. My dad ran one of the first female basketball leagues in the 70s and wow. 80s. Uh, That's well ahead of his time. Well ahead of his time. And, uh, Katino uh, Mobile, who played in the pros for a long time, uh, his mom played in it. And she used to say to me all the time, "You know, your father used to have a girls' league back when they had no girls." <laughs> I mean, so, so I always, was, I always was in the gym. Uh, I always uh, uh, was around basketball, around sports. My, we were just in basketball. We we had football, we had baseball. My dad ran little leagues, all that stuff like that. So I've always been around sports. Now, I know, speaking of your sports love, I know this because we've talked about it. There are a few things you love more than the Philadelphia Eagles. Yes, a few. So uh, there, wh when did the love, were you just into Philadelphia sports, anything, all the teams? Or was there something special about the Eagles that, that you really attached yourself to? When I was born, my, I had this, uh, uh, my mom had this picture of me with a baby with a Philadelphia Eagles hat on. It was actually bigger than my whole body and a little like plastic football on the side of me. <laughs> so that's when I go back to the Eagles. And my whole family watched the Eagles. My mom, listen, everybody, my uncles, everybody, my dad, when he was alive, I mean, we were all Philadelphia Eagles fan. We used to get together on Sundays, have dinner, watch the Eagles. Even to the day, my family, my mom goes ballistic about the foot up either. She talked, you watching this game? You know what I mean? Like, you know, so we're a sports family. So my mom loves the Eagles and the Phillies. Got it. And did you, do you love the Phillies as much yes, as your mom? Yes, yes. So Phillies is probably my second Philadelphia team. I would go to a lot of the games. Uh, you know, my uncles uh, used to play softball and I used to go with them, you know, baseball stuff. And uh, my grandmother, my, my dad's mom actually did the South Philly. And the old vet was probably, it was in walking distance. And she had a couple of friends that used to take me to the games back when you could bring your lunch, you know what I mean? And do all those things. They would buy me a soda, but we would bring pack a lunch. Oh yeah. Back then they would play the double headers. Yeah, scheduled, scheduled, yeah. on the yeah. schedule, double headers. Oh, we go watch the double headers. I got me a couple of sandwiches. They buy me a soda, they eat peanuts and we watch the games. So, so those are the things that we grew up with. So I actually, growing up, watched way, went to 
more Phillies games than I did Eagles games. Mm-hmm. But I did not miss the Eagles. We, on Sundays, we watched the Eagles. I we watched the Eagles. And how good that feel when they finally won it all a couple oh, of years back? Oh, man, because you got to understand, I lived in New England for 12 years. Oh! Uh, you know, you know, you know, and plus, I had some New England guys on my staff. Yeah. <laughs> guys, oh, my goodness. I mean, like, I used to hear it all the time. And the Patriots were bad, actually, when I started in New England. Right. I, they, they weren't real good. I mean, they won it uh, with Parcells. But uh, Pete Carroll was the coach, mm-hmm. right? And uh, those guys were terrible. Then they started winning, and I started hearing it. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> at that time, the Eagles were better. We right. weren't going to the Super Bowl, but we had Buddy Ryan and Randall Cunningham. You know, we got the teams. They were, they were better team. You know, I should talk a little trash, but they got back at me when they started winning the championships. <laughs> <laughs> so, where, so where did the name, where did the nickname Bruiser come from? When I was born, I had this intestinal uh, um, infection. And I was in the hospital for six weeks. Holy shit. So it was cut, you know, it was cutting, you know, it was, you know, my mom said that uh, they didn't think I was, but it was, it was a little touch and go. And my mom was getting nervous. And my grandfather one day said, don't worry about it. He's going to go up to be a bruiser. Oh, fuck. That is good, man. So everybody calls me that. So that is good. Not one person in my family really calls me by my name, James. Not one. Not one. <laughs> one person. Not one person in my family calls me James. Bruiser's kind of a badge of honor, man. That's good. That's <laughs> good stuff. That is good stuff. I mean, we have to have the best nicknames of any staff in college basketball. Archie. Archie. Half the people don't even realize that's a nickname. When I first came here and I was signing up with the live where I live now, right? So they asked me to put who is your employee's name? And I put Archie Miller, right? And they called me and said, yo, no Archie Miller works at you at uh, at, uh, at IU. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because I didn't really know Archie's name was Ryan, right? So so, so I put Archie, but they were like, they called me up and said, hey, you're your employee. There's no person in the name of Archie Miller that's an employee. <laughs> You you call Archie, you go, sorry, man, it was a short run. Short run here. Um, it is true though, Ward, right? You got Bruiser, Archie. No one calls Ostrom Tom. It's T.O., right? Mm-hmm. Bill Comar is BC. Mm-hmm. And Mike Roberts, at least we've heard from his former teammates, is boss. I don't know if you guys oh, are. Yeah, they call boss. Everybody that I've met that know Mike, forget the team, even people that just went to school with him, they call him boss. <laughs> <laughs> Does That's does great. Archie does Archie call him boss? No, no. I don't think everybody really knows that everybody calls him boss. <laughs> so uh so what about um ABA, NBA? Who were your did you have some basketball idols? You had some good players oh, yeah. come through Philadelphia when you were a kid. Who were you looking actually, up? No, actually though, uh I don't think anybody was my two favorite players growing up uh were Gus Williams, the wizard. And Mo Cheeks. Oh, yeah. So those are my two favorite players. Those are the guys that I watch and I try to emulate as a player. Those two guys I, I, I really watch. And I, and I love Gus Williams. I love the Wizard. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, so I, love, I love Gus Williams and Mo Cheeks because he was a sixer. And, uh, uh, you know, I watched him the most. But those are the two guys as a, as, as a young kid that I watched growing up. And then, of course, you had Doc. You know what I mean? Like, you know, everybody wanted to be like Julius Irving. I just, you know, those guys were my position. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so that those are the guys that I, I really watched. Just because there's an Indiana connection, I have to ask, did you have any affinity for George McGinnis? Yeah, I mean, George, George McGinnis, uh, 
he was the one that got the Sixers out of the doldrums. Mm-hmm. They went from the worst record ever in the history. I think it's still the worst record ever in the history. They only won seven games. We brought, we brought the Mac attack, big Mac attack. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe brought George McGinnis in and we actually started winning. I mean, yeah. we started winning. Uh, you know, he had that shot, you know what I mean? He shot one handed, one handed. So, I mean, uh, but he was a good player. Now we would get a little peed off because we didn't think he always played well in the playoffs, but, <laughs> but he was the one that took us off. He took us out of the, uh, out of being like a, a, a losing franchise, but we got him. He turned it around as much as everybody wants to talk about Julius. Julius took us to another level where we started playing for championships, but it was George McGinnis who got us to be a playoff team and those things like that. I'll be honest with you, I, I didn't really realize uh, until one day I walked around in the, um, the entrance to, the, to Cook. Yeah. And I didn't realize, I was like, yo, this guy, you know what I mean? He averaged, yo, he put some numbers up for one. 30 and 15. You know, 30 I was and 15. Like, oh, so I called my boys back home. I was like, yo, George, you know, a lot of people in Philadelphia don't even realize he went to Indiana. I know. Most pe- a lot of people in Indiana don't recognize that he went oh, to Indiana, believe it or not. Like, oh, man, George McGinnis was pretty good here, man. I, I, <laughs> I don't think he has some stuff that no one has ever did in the history of the league still to the day. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, so, I mean, he was a good player. So Yeah, good. I mean, w- we had him on a few weeks back, and, and looking into that, Eric made the point, like, he probably had the single greatest – statistical season in the history of Indiana University. I think it might have been in the Big Ten. It might have yeah. been. I mean, I 30, 30 and 15. Ten. And by yeah. the way, they also didn't keep track of blocks right. back so, then. Who knows how many blocks? I mean, he probably had triple doubles based on blocks. Yes. Yes. Um, so when did basketball go from something you were trying to emulate the wizard and you were playing at your dad's rec center? And when did you realize I'm pretty good at this and you know, this could take me somewhere. Um, like my dad was always involved in that type of stuff. So um, like uh, Gene Banks, Mike Brooks, those guys all played for my dad as little kids. Mm, wow. You know I mean? uh, uh, so I grew up in a neighborhood, it was some good basketball players. <laughs> so, uh, and plus we played, um, I grew up watching guys in the Sunny Hill League. Uh, that's a huge summer league uh, in Philadelphia. And my dad was a part of that. So my dad sort of had an idea. Uh, just do your thing. You know what I mean? You're good enough. Then, you know, as a kid, you start making some all-star teams. You know what I mean? You start doing all those things like that. People start coming to talk to you about playing for them. Although my dad wouldn't let me do that. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it became one of those things. You know, you you played. You know whether or not you were good enough to be a part of it. Because one. Yeah, I knew I wasn't. <laughs> one, you played in an area where it was very highly competitive. So right. you knew you were playing against good players. And if you started getting off and really playing, you knew you, you you knew you could be good enough. There was no false sense, no false security of I'm playing and I'm the best player, and but I'm, the rest of the players aren't very good. Uh, one thing about growing up back then was that you went to the different playgrounds and played in the city. So and there's no referees. You know what I mean? Like so, you had to you know you had to earn your elk because they didn't show you no respect just because you showed up and played. Right. So that was one of the things you did. So. When people start giving you that respect, then you, you, know, you knew you was a pretty decent player. You, you know, not to go back to the, the, the race stuff, but in St. Louis, and I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in West County. But we had a desegregation program. We played against a lot of schools that were all black schools. 
And it's funny because the measuring stick for us, for white kids playing in St. Louis was how do you play against the black schools? Because that's how you knew if you were good. And I remember like we would go into Vashon. You've probably recruited some kids from Vashon, right? Or Cardinal Ritter or Berkeley. And in the summer, there were pickup games where you knew it was going to be, you were going to be the only white guy. But you loved it because if you got the approval there, you know, if you got picked, if you were like, they, they were happy to see you, then you knew that, that you had made it. And it's just funny, like sports flips the paradigm because oftentimes the black standard in sports is the higher standard. It was for us. It was for us. And, and it it was part of what led to, I think, I was fortunate to grow up in that environment where you never saw anything except for that being something you wanted to be like, you know, you wanted to play at that level. It's funny because, uh, you know, I went to an all white school and I'm in the interact was an all white league. So when I went to high school, I had to prove myself again. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. You're just in there beating up on these white boys. You know what I mean? like, you know, no, seriously, you know what I mean? Let me see it. But it was opportunities yeah. that you played in. In Philly, they had this thing called Concha Hawking Tournament. And uh, it was huge because in Concha, one, the gym was real small. And you proved your game. And everybody played Catford, Public, Interact, uh, uh, Suburban Leagues. Everybody played in this thing. So my boys, I played, you know, I'm from the city, but I played on the Hill League team. And my boys that was in the public league, when we go play against another team in the Concha Hawken tournament, they talk about the guys they had played against in the pub. You know who you're going against tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so we driving up to the game. That's all I hear in the back of my head. Boo, you're not playing against Germantown Academy tonight. Guess who you're playing against tonight. Such and such showing up tonight. So you 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 had you had to prove yourself to those guys. Right. Like, okay. All right. I hear you. So I, I, there there you kind of get the this idea of the style of play if you come from New York or growing up in Indiana, like the fundamentally fundamentally sound white guy who's a good shooter. There's these stereotypes of style of play. Did, did Philly have an identity like that? Like that you guys thought of when you thought of like this is how we play in Philly? Or was it just all across the board? No, nah, grimy. Grimy. <laughs> uh, the guy, they always say Philly guys is tough. You know what I mean? You know, we we would battle, you know, New York, D.C. You know what I mean? You would go and play against those guys all the time. And uh, that's the one thing you held your hat on. Like, you know, you wasn't going to get punked. You know what I mean? going to be tough. You know, you was playing against. They're going to know they was in a battle. So that's where the, the, the Philly pride thing comes in. It's the same thing with the, the, the professional sports teams. So they talk about, talk about the toughness of the city. So that was the thing you brought to the table. Uh, and again, your talent would show. But one thing you never, you knew when you was going up against this was that you wasn't going to back down. Like you, you're going to get a battle. Now, even if you got the best of them, you're going to go back and you're going to say, yo, that dude played tough today. You know what I mean? He, he a tough, he was a tough pass. I think that's the thing that goes on with Philly players, the toughness of it. Uh, and, you know, we've had some guys, you know, I grew up, you know, Pooh Richardson was a little younger than me, Dallas Carmody. Those guys all played in the league uh, uh, and all those things like that. Uh, but no one ever questioned, as we say back in Philly, no one ever tapped your chest. <laughs> I like, like that. I like they tap, that. They ain't tapping the chest. You know what I mean? That's not what you're doing. You ain't doing that against us. You're not going to tap my chest. Um, so that's the one thing that you that we that we brought every day when we came to do it. You weren't going to tap our chest. When you think back to your high school career, 
obviously you were a star, you made all, all city. Uh, there has to be a game or a moment that stands out to you that we, when you're just by yourself and you're thinking back to the good old days, there's gotta be a moment where you're like, oh yeah, I was the man during that time. <laughs> what, what, what stands out to you as, as a moment from back in high school? I would have to say West Catholic was my neighborhood Catholic school. Okay. So we go play them at night. <laughs> the whole hood, the whole hood is in there, right? One, when they come to see, but they wasn't coming up to Episcopal. The hood wasn't coming up to Episcopal to watch no games. Only a couple of my boys are going, man, I ain't going up there. <laughs> so, so now we're playing West Catholic. Got a couple of my boys who I grew up with that went to the school. They had a good program, like a lot of the kids that went to Catholic school. They're good players. They went to West. So this was the night. You know what I mean? Like, you know, everybody there, they showed up for this one, right? You know, I got my boys in my neighborhood, they talking crap to the guys from other neighborhoods and stuff, right? You know, so I put on a show for them. That was it. Plus, I always say that was the, that was the day where also, too, I got the respect for the people who was going to vote for all city, all state, mm. all those things like that. It was one of those days where everybody was there. It was a night game. And I know I, I put on a show that night. It's funny because one of the all-time great players at Drexel uh, played against us that night. He actually passed away from leukemia. Mm. So when I was a coach at Drexel, we did a little fundraising for John and all those things for his family and everything. And this high school coach came to the game and he, I mean, came to the event and he talked about it. That game. He said, yeah, you got to understand, this was 80, 81, 82, <laughs> and John died in the early 2000s. Right, and his high school coach talked to me about that game, and he goes, "It's one of the best performances I ever seen somebody ever have against me." <laughs> yes, high school coach. But that was my night. I got ready for that night. I won't be at West Catholic. Plus, I went to school with no girls, so uh. you know, so, so, so you know what I mean. So it was one of those nights. Everybody was in the house. The girls, the homies, everybody. <laughs> was in the house. Everybody was in the house. So, bro, you you got to show up for this one right here tonight. <laughs> Do you remember what? Do you remember what your? Do you remember how many you scored? No, no, but I know I scored over thirty. Oh, so, uh, man. and that and, that, and that's before three point shot. Yeah, so, right. You know, no, I, got, I know I got. I, I know I got in the thirties in there. But that, my, the guy actually said to me, goes, "I never forget that night." He said, "You put on an unbelievable performance." So, did uh, you talk trash? Were you a trash talker? A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Little bit, little yeah, bit, I little can bit. see that. I talked a, talk a little trash. A little bit. <laughs> So, uh, so when did you you realize it was it was not going to be a big jump physically to where you were going to school? You said uh, St. Joe's was basically across the street. How did that recruitment go? Who else did you talk to, and why did you decide to stay so close to to home? Well, actually, I took a trip and I came home, and my parents thought I was going to go out of town to go to school, mm. and um, they sat me down and they said. Uh, We'd like to be a part of your, to see you play. You know what I mean? I actually had good enough grades growing up. I wanted to go to the University of Penn. Oh, wow. And I actually had the grades to go, but they didn't recruit me. And my really? School, yeah, my high school coach was like, are you guys crazy? Like, you're not, not going to recruit them? So they didn't recruit me. That's where I wanted to go. Bonnie Salters and Bobby Willis, Big Five. I watched Big Five basketball. That was my favorite backcourt. They were good. You know, those are the guys that when Penn went to the Final Four, those mm -hmm. guys. So uh, Tim Smith and Vince Ross, they were from my neighborhood, and they went to Penn. 
Angelo Reynolds. So I, I knew a lot of guys and I watched them a lot. And, uh, and growing up, that was my favorite team. And I wanted to go there and I had the grades to go. Uh, but they didn't recruit me. So after I went on a couple trips and, uh, you know, back then, no cell phones. But I had been discussing a couple of things with my, at the time, my girlfriend, about possibly you know, going away and all that stuff like that. She sort of got it back to my sister. <laughs> Explain it to my parents. I don't know my, my, you know, my, my parents were divorced and all that stuff like that. It was one of the first times my mom, me, my mom, and my dad really sat down and had a conversation. Wow. So I, so I knew it was serious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My dad came in the house. I said, somebody die or something? Why, why <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> like he picked me up from the airport and we were going home. So he, you know, my dad, you know, my dad, you know, he was, you know, my best friend, you know what I mean? So when he came in the house that day, though, we sat down and we talked. And my mom, my mom, and my mom wasn't really one to really go and watch me play a lot until my uncles who would come to the game, her brothers, would say, yo, you got to go watch him. Now, you're pretty good. You know what I mean? And then when they said, hey, we want to be a part of it. We want to be able to come to the games and, and see it. So that's when I, when I decided, okay, I'll, I'll just go across the same village. Clearly, education was a big part of your life. And I am guessing that your parents played a big role in that. Um, you know, as we talk about the world that we're in uh, and, and race relations and how, what are the solutions to fix it, almost all of them, you can draw a line back to early education. No, right. No, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Education. My, uh, I, my fifth grade teacher told my parents, don't let them go through the public school system. Mm. How about that? But and see, she, that's, but you know what? That's what's sad because you were fortunate. You were fortunate that you were able to not. Right. Too many kids, that, it's not a choice, right? Uh, so my dad at the time, with financial aid and all that stuff, we could afford it. But she was the one that set up for me to go take all the tests to go to the private schools. Wow. So she was fifth grade my, teacher. Fifth grade teacher. Fifth grade teacher, Ms. Marina Robinson. She was the one that said, okay, look, she told my dad. My dad told me later, I didn't know at the time, but later on in life, because when I was a coach at uh, uh, UMass, when I was the head coach, I brought her up to a game oh. and, and all that stuff like that because she was, she was really, you know, people were too old. You remember encyclopedias and- Oh, uh, yeah, and man. Things. I don't know if y'all guys are open up for that. Brit right? oh, yeah. Britannica, Britannica and, and New World, right? There was New World. She was the one that sort of like got me to start, my parents to buy me those types of things and stuff like that. So she, my dad told me later on that she was like, look, I want him to take tests to go to these different schools and um, uh, because he shouldn't go through the public school system. And, uh, and then she asked my dad whether or not he thought he could afford it if he had to, you know, cause it you know, cost money. And uh, my dad did the whole financial aid thing until I went to, until I went to high school actually when I got scholarship, but, uh, but she was the one that started. And I don't care what anybody says until we get the educational part of it down the opportunities are not going to be the same. Right. That's why every dollar needs to go. Yes. I mean, yes. I'm being, I'm being hyperbolic that's, with every dollar, but we got to fix the schools. I mean, it's just, that's got to be the initiative. One of the things that even I have to pay a little bit more attention to is when you go to vote, those proposition things, mm -hmm. because that has a lot to do with where your money in the cities and the places are being spent. Uh, why they doing certain things? You got to pay attention to those questions. 
yeah. not just the people that you're voting for, but some of the things that you actually vote for that are going on in your counties and in your towns and in your cities, uh, because I think it's important. Uh, you know, growing up in the city and being a coach also too, I've gone in the buildings and I say to myself, how does anybody learn here? Right. You know what I mean? It's like, I've been in those, I've been in those situations in those places and things like that. So education is a huge, huge part of it. Huge part of it. Uh, uh, it can never be taken away from you. And those are the things that help you go along in life. It gives you an opportunity to get to equal ground. It does. Uh, it gives you the opportunity to do it. And until we start really uh, emphasizing that everybody should have the same type of education, then we won't have the problems that we have. And, that, and, that, and that's a big part of it. I don't care what anybody says. It's been an interesting part of the conversation the last couple of weeks of how these funds that have basically gone to weaponize, militarize the police to an extreme, they they couldn't possibly need just to to keep a town safe uh, could go to education. And, yeah. and that that right there, there's there's two solutions coming out of just proportionate uh, putting the 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 the, uh, the tax dollars of those voters instead of over here into new shiny guns into educators and books and you know it, it won't cure everything overnight but that could be a pretty dramatic change as early as November going forward into next year if people can educate themselves in the platforms in the next few months and take it to the polls. One of the things I, I, I found out very, well, I mean, I wouldn't say I found out, but one of the things I used to preach to my kids, uh, I coached a lot of first-generation college students. I would say 90% of my players that I coached were first-generation college students. Wow. And I used to always say to them all the time, plant the seed. Because one of the things I learned at Episcopal was when I started to, you know, be really a part of the community, I would go have dinner at, one of my friends from school, one of my white friends from school houses and stuff like that. First one, the first question they asked me was, what college your parents go to? Mm -hmm. So for them, it was a hand-me-down. It, sure. it was a given. It was a given. Yeah, a given. This is what you're doing. So it was as much a part for white people. It is as much a part of where are you from? Yes. Both, we, both, we, of, yeah. both of our dads went to IU. Yes, yeah, seriously. So I always tell my guys, and one thing, because I'm old enough now, my guys at UMass, I used to always tell them all the time, you get your education, you plant the seed, you may not be a doctor or a lawyer, but your kids will have a chance to be a doctor or a lawyer mm -hmm. because you'll understand the importance of it and you'll preach it from day one. Right. That's the biggest, that's the biggest difference right there. You'll preach it from day one. You'll preach education. One of my best players I ever coached, arguably the best player I ever coached at UMass, we talk about this all the time, and he came from a situation where, I mean, it was, it was crazy. His kids go to college now, and it's not because of sports. Oh, so he taught it, and when he came to school, we didn't think he was going to make it because academically he was absolutely horrible. Now he can shoot down. I mean, like, like I said, he, he put that ball in the basket. He's a prop 48, but he got his degree, right? He got his degree, and he understood the importance of it. And he played overseas and made a lot of money. So when his kids were born, that's the one thing he taught. We talk about that more than anything else, right? And his kid is a true hood kid. The one thing, even when he was playing overseas and 
You know what I mean? He, you know, he, he wasn't married to their moms or anything like that. He said, yo, bro, I remember what you said. and I make sure my kids go to good schools. And both his sons are in college without sports. It's phenomenal. So those, are the, things, those are the things that, that, uh, that the importance of education come. Like I said, uh, when you're a first generation college student and your parents didn't go, because I know a lot of times uh, uh, people like you get a high school diploma, it's time to go get a job. We don't teach at times, yo, let's go to school, make it better for yourself. Right. You know what I mean? But when you've experienced it, oh, it's second nature. You know what I mean? You're going to talk to your kids about going to school, getting an education, things like that. And now your family tree becomes, they say, well, where you, where you go to school at? Where'd you go to college? That's what happens. And that's one of the things that I learned by doing once I got old enough to really understand it. When I go, went over to my friend's house to eat and the, my wife friends to eat and things like that. They would talk about, they would talk about, they would talk about school. They would talk about education. And those are the conversations we should have a lot more when we start experiencing the things that we experience from an educational standpoint. Well, let's talk about your college experience. You go across the street to St. Joe's, mm -hmm. a very, very well-known, uh, respected basketball school playing in the uh, A-10, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, what was it like making the transition from being a stud in Philadelphia and now you're playing Division One college basketball? Uh, I think it was easy because I played when I was a freshman. Now, now I had my little – I didn't get along with my coach. <laughs> <laughs> and all the guys that played with me always remind me of that. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be like, bro, you used to argue with Bo all the time, right? So, uh, but, um, I mean, I played – I played in every game as a college player except for one. Wow. So that makes a huge difference. Yeah. And the one I didn't play in, um, a guy sent me this, uh, this uh, film of me playing against Rutgers in uh, my freshman year. And uh, I always remember this because we lose. We win in the entire game. And we end up losing. And my coach actually said something to me. And I actually told him, if you don't play me more, because my guy, if you don't if you don't win, you better play me some more. <laughs> and my my former roommate and now my best friend Jeff Arnold, who's the coach at Riley now, he always talks about that. I sent it to him. And he said, Yo, that's the game you told Bo, you really want to win, you better play me. For the next, for the next game, I remember this, we played at Duquesne and he didn't put me in. Wow. He didn't put me in. And how he good of a motivator me. was that for you? Well, honestly, I always felt as though I brought it every day. Yeah. That was one of the things I did, right? I didn't let it mess me up. You know, I grew up in the era, I'm going to show you. Right. You know what I mean? It's not now where it was like, okay, you want to do that? I'm, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. Now, I started playing after that. And uh, you know, you know, I, I kept playing, but Jeff, Jeff actually told me that he tried to put his hand over my mouth because he heard it. it was, he, he knew something was coming out. He could he, tell. And, uh, yeah. Uh oh, it's back in say something. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, so that was one of the things about it that was kind of funny because people, not my my former guys I played with, says. Who's like you on the team? Like, who were the players that you coached that were like you? Gave the coach a living hell. <laughs> Would you say uh, there's anybody? Anybody on this last Indiana team that's like you? No, 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 no. I think the kids today are a little bit different. 
kid yeah. that I coached at Drexel, who's actually a coach now, who's one of the youngest Division One head coaches, Bossier Mason. He was like me. Okay. Uh, he would he would challenge me at every single air about stuff. And he's a coach. He's one of the youngest Division One coaches in the country at Wagner. And uh, he would challenge me. And I always, he, we, we talked about this on the Zoom one day. We all got together and we just talked about hoops. He says, I told him one day, you're going to have a headache because you don't listen because I'm going to pound it in your head until you listen. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he would challenge me at every single – and I'm going to tell you one of the things that I got to, to the point where if he walked over to me and said, we should run this, I did it. Uh, you respect him. I reached because I I know he wasn't coming over to give me no bull crap. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, he got that. I got this one. I I by the time he was a junior, right? I knew that this kid could be a good coach. You know what I mean? Wow. So I knew it. So when he would walk over to me, and uh, sometimes you know I would I can't I guess I can't be cussing too much on the on. Yeah, the you can let it, on, let it let it let it fucking rip. I was talking to shut the fuck up sometimes, but <laughs> I respected him for that to this day because I felt as though he had a good uh, a good feel for what we're doing. And I will say this, even as I got older, I thought my coach, because the guys talk about this a little bit. Now, they tell me I would change the, the play as we were walking out of the huddle. <laughs> and I would go, yo, we, not, we ain't running that. <laughs> right? So, and you got to understand, I got three or four guys that I play with. They're college coaches. They head coaches. You know, they, they, they college they're pros. They'd be like, yo, man, you just, just you used to walk off the bench and man, we ain't running that. Just what we running. And they would do it. That wow. Was the thing. They would do it. And I think Bo got to the point was like, yo, these guys are actually, listen, maybe I need to use this guy a little bit different. So I would actually talk to him on the bench. He would literally come down once in a while and say, what you seeing? Wow. So, you know, so that was one of the things that, uh, that for me now, you understand me and him had this relationship that was like, you know, I would go at him now about why we're doing it, you know what I mean? All those things like that. But as, as towards the end of my career, it became one of those things where he would ask me, what you think and what, what, you, what you're looking at with things like that. So it was pretty good. And that's when my guy, the guys with my team actually said to me, that's when they knew that I was going to be, become a coach. Wow. So, you were coming. We knew you were going to coach. We knew you were going to coach. I'm I'm curious. Clearly, you were a, a general on the floor. But what what are we seeing when we're we're seeing Bruiser out on the court on both ends? Give us a better feel for for the like the strengths of your game and and what we could expect on any given night from you out there. It was a different time. So you passed the ball 75 times before you shot. <laughs> <laughs> 45 played, seconds shot clock. No, no, I played no shot clock. Two years of the 45-second shot clock. My junior year was shot clock. My senior year was three-pointers. It was right. the first year. First year. So, so, you know what? 14 points. You 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 you, you put it out there, yeah. right? 14 so, and six. But you didn't play that way back then. You passed the ball around a 1,000 times. If you watch film, everybody played zone, and everybody played below the foul line. <laughs> Packed it in. But, Look at those look at those old old Indiana uh that come on BTN, those old Indiana that look at it back then in those days, right? You pass it around a lot and 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 you didn't and guards just really didn't shoot the ball. You tried to get it inside. You played you played inside out. That's the way you played. Even though everybody was packed in, it was a different game back then. You know, not a lot of teams ran. You ran on opportunities, you rebounded and missed, you ran. If not, 
You walked it up, you passed that ball around 45 times. I played for a guy who, a lot of games, we went four to score. You went what? Four to score. <laughs> four guys out and we four. held the ball. <laughs> we played Villanova my, my I never forget this I think it was my sophomore year that's the year they won the national championship and Eddie Pinkney he always teases me about this all the time we're winning seven minutes ago we went in the four to score and we held the ball and we turned it over one time they came down and scored they beat us <laughs> <laughs> one time that's it I'm telling you we lost the game in the, in the final seconds after holding the ball for almost eight minutes <laughs> <laughs> so, when you, the play, that's the way you played back then. I mean, that's the way you played. Dean Smith made four to score famous. That's what he used to run in North Carolina. Yeah. You when you look around, when you look around, or even at the, you know, the way you guys are coaching now, or look around at the NBA, do you just think, God damn, I wish I was playing today? Uh, the freedom, though. The one thing about the games were a little bit more physical. There was no intentional foul. And I tease our players about this all the time. If you were ahead of me, and I could get to you, or oh, you was in the stands. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I mean, that, was, that was just the, that's the way you played. Like, you right. got knocked in the stands, and you just got up and you went and shoot foul something. There was, no, there was no, no guy getting up fouling. Hey, I just watched the, uh, a thing the other day on the Celtics when uh, uh, Mikhail uh, 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 clotheslined uh, uh, the guy from the Lakers. There was no okay. technical fouls, and there was no throwouts. I just got up and he went and, he, <laughs> and he went and shot two fouls out. But that's the way you played back then. Right. You know what I mean? The game was a little, the physicality of it was a little bit more now. And it's not the athletes that they have now, but the physicality of it was totally different. I mean, I, I mean, we had, we had two brawls when I was a college player. And nobody got thrown out of the game. <laughs> <laughs> just, everybody just, they broke everybody up. Sat on the bench for a few minutes. The guy who was in the brawl was shooting, shot, and you lined up and you played. That's how it was. So it's a totally different game than it was then. And like I said, 87 was my last year of college. That was the first year of three-point play. Like officially, everybody used the three-point line. Right. And uh, it became a little bit of a different game. And even then, you didn't shoot as many threes. There was only like one guy on a team that yeah. was shooting the three. It was shooting like three a game. And the coaches didn't trust it. So the only person I would say at that time was Rick Pitino. He was the first person to take advantage of the three points. As shot. a team. Well, As Steve team. Alford that year for Indiana, yes. we won the yes. title because Steve Alford shot three-pointers. So, but nobody, you're, you're, you, that wasn't part of your, 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 no. your play. You, you didn't set up a guy to shoot a three-point shot. Right. And because at that time, you had, you still, you had the 45-second shot clock. You still pass it around for almost 40 seconds. Yeah. No, you're right. And Patino went to the Final Four that year with Providence yeah. Yeah. And, exactly. and Billy Donovan as his point guard. And they they were, you know, one of the – maybe UNLV a little bit was, was kind of free-wielding with Tarkanian and those guys. But you're right. I mean, it was rare to have more than one guy on a team who was going to shoot a three. All right, so you gave us your highlight from high school in, in your rival game. What do you take from your time at St. Joe? Is there one game, one moment that stands out to you as, a, uh, as the one that brings a smile to your face? I had 36 at West Virginia. Ooh, nice. You ever play there? No, you haven't ever been there? No, no, they, no. Well, you know, they're the Mountaineers. They should shoot this, this, this musket off. Boom, with like a cannon. <laughs> they used to do it while you're playing. 
that's how different that's how different the stuff is, right? Anybody will tell you that ever went and played at West Virginia as a basketball player, they talk about the musket. Hmm. Inside. Inside. They shoot that thing on. <laughs> Boom! You, you, you would. You would jump. Everybody that ever played, they would shoot off that musket. So I had my career high at West Virginia. We actually lost, but... Uh, but you but, went uh, off. I went off. I went did, off. Did you... And at what point... Are you at this point in your career, your senior year, are you thinking professional basketball, international, or are you already thinking, I want to coach? Um, I actually, I was thinking about playing different times. Little guys like myself didn't really get contracts like that. Um, a guy, George Chavales asked me, look, I could get you hooked up in South America. But I was like, yo, I ain't moving to South, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm from Philly. I like basketball, but I ain't like it that much for me to be moving to South America. So by that time, by the end of my junior year, I actually started sending letters out to coaches that I had met through my dad, because my dad, you know, did some, was, we had, he had guys that, that people recruited. So I met coaches and stuff like that. So I started sending out letters about being a GA and uh, going, to grad, being a, going to grad school and, and, and getting into coaching. So uh, Jim Foster, who was a women's coach at St. Joe's at the time, went on Ohio State and Vanderbilt, was at Middle Tennessee now. Uh, when I was a kid and how I got into coaching, I just was telling the guys this the other day, was uh, my dad when I was a freshman in college, and y'all will appreciate this one. So, because uh, I know what type of guys you were in college. So, uh, <laughs> it's a Saturday morning, and I get a call about 7 o'clock. Now, you know, back then, the phones was in the hallway. Oh, yeah. Mm. You know what I mean? There was no phone in your room, so somebody literally had to answer the phone and come knock on your door. <laughs> So I get a I get a phone call from my dad. So I need you to come and help me with this. Uh, and this girl I used to date, she had a car. So he said, yo, can you get that car from that girl? And uh, I need you to help me take the kids to the game. Because my ride didn't show up. So I'm like, you know, it's, it's Saturday morning. Yeah. You know what I mean? After, after a Friday night. Yeah, okay, you're not, you're not, Are you you've, never, you've, you've never seen 7 a.m. on a Saturday. <laughs> you know I mean? So I'm like, he's like, yo, you better get down here right there. So, all right. So I, so I go, I get the car, you know what I mean? Boom, the girl's like, what are you doing? Like, you know, I was like, all right. Like, I get the car, I go pick them up, I go to my recreation center where I grew up at. Pick the kids up, we drive, I drive to the game. Now they had a problem with the other coach. So my dad says, you coach my team, I'll coach the other team. Because we need some, you know, some adult supervision. All right, fine. So my dad was a little crazy. He used to smack guys and hit them with his hat. <laughs> hit guys with his hat, cussed at them all the time, right? A little bit. I did that too. But yeah, I was going to say, I got a little right? bit of cursing at when I played him, for you. Cussed at him and all that stuff like that. To me, you know, I just coached these guys. You know what I mean? So afterwards, <laughs> a couple of the guys like, you coming back next week? <laughs> <laughs> so he's was like, yo, man, come back next week, you're five. And to this day, there's three guys on the team, and they were bitty league. And, you know, they were fifth and sixth year year old, fifth and sixth grade kids, right? Uh, and and that we coached in this league. And to this day, they some of my best little friends. I talk to them all the time. Wow! Right? So they that's like, incredible. Yeah. So that's where you got the bug. So so then they were like, "Come on, man, come back next week." Da -da -da -da. So I was like, "All right." So I started coming back. And then it goes from not just 
coaching a team, you got to wash the uniforms, you got to do all those things like that. You got to you got to get ready. You know what I mean? You got to get get the guys ready. And I, I ain't gonna lie, I loved it. I, I went back every every Saturday, mm. even even from having them all nighters where you just like <laughs> going and jump in the shower. Let me go. I got a game this morning. <laughs> Y'all guys appreciate that. Y'all know. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, one of those things. And I just, I just loved it. So as I started going, and my dad actually started putting me in a situation where I coach older kids. So I became a, a, a coach. I was still in college in the Sunny Hill League, what they call mm. the, the Future League. So it was eighth, ninth grade kids. And uh, Jim Foster, the girls used to play before us. And Foss, one summer I was in school just working out. He says, come in the office. And he says, I've been staying after watching the girl, because he was recruiting the girls. He said, I've been staying watching you coach. You should do this. So I was like, seriously? He says, no, I'm telling you. He says, I've watched you. I think he said he watched me four or five times. He said, this is you. You should do this. You should really think about doing this. Plus, he says, I already know you argue with Bo about everything that goes on with the team, about how we play. He goes, this is for you. You know what I mean? And he was the one that said, you know some coaches, I know your dad, know a lot of guys, start writing letters, introducing yourself to people, telling them this is what you want to do. And, uh, and that's how I got started. And so then, you start yeah. at, Copen, at Copen State a couple years. Coppin State. Yep. Coppin State. State. Yep. And then how, how did you get hooked up on the, the Calipari train and end yep. up at UMass? Back then used to work camp. And when I was at Coppin State, I was supposed to make $12,000, right? My first year, I ended up making six. I ended up living with the players. Holy but they didn't have the, they didn't have the money for me. But I was I was I was I wasn't a GA. I was recruit. I went recruiting for six thousand dollars. Six thousand dollars. I made one hundred seventy nine dollars and twenty eight cents every two weeks, and it was only for nine months. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it was only for nine months. So in the summers, I would go. Actually, the summer before I went to Coppin State. I worked at Five Star Camp. It was a big camp. I never went as a player because Philly kids didn't go at Five Star. Um, uh, so I, you know, so I, I went to work. It. And Garfinkel, honestly, he just took a liking to me for some odd reason. Garf was a huge gambler. And he told me he made a lot of money on me at the end of the game because I made my foul shots. <laughs> <laughs> so... So me and him would talk. So I go back, I go to cop and I start everything up and, you know, I get into it. And like I said, I didn't make anything. I live with the players, right? But, you know, I was going out recruiting and every summer I would go back and that's when I met Cap. And I met Billy Baino, who's actually the assistant for the Pacers, one of my best friends, the Pacers now. And we just hit it off. Now, and I hung out with Billy more than I hung out with Cap. So my second year at Cop and I get this call. Actually, uh, Seth Greenberg's brother, Brad, he recruited me to St. Joe's. Mm. So I get a call from Seth. Seth at the time's at Long Beach State. He says, hey, Brad calls me and says, hey, my brother want to talk to you about coming out there, coaching out Long Beach State. So I actually talked to Seth about huh. it. Then I got a call from Garth. And uh, this was um, Cal's first year at UMass. And uh, he uh, he's lost his assistant. So Garth calls me and says, you're going to UMass. Just tell us. He just tells me, you're going to UMass. So it was another guy that was a real important guy named Frank Marino, who was one of the all-time great characters. He calls me. 
I don't want you to go and work for Cal. <laughs> so I was like, you know, and I knew Cal. And we, you know, back then, you know, you wasn't calling about You wrote letters. Hey, man, how you doing? You know, those type of things like that. And Cal always told me, he said, when I was at camp, I always watched you because you always had a thing with the players. The guys always surrounded you at camp. And I used to say to myself, why all these guys like, like this guy? Then he said, I talked to Frank and I talked to, uh, and, uh, I talked to, uh, uh, Garth, and they were like, you should hire him. And he said, I want a young black guy, because I was only 23 years old. Mm. And he was like, I want a young black guy, and you know, I, I need it. So he said, but I always watched you. And you know, a couple times me and him went to lunch, we talked, you know, nothing crazy. And then he said, come on up to UMass. And that's what I did. So I went up there. And I'll be honest with you, uh, a lot of people, because Cal had a reputation, a lot of people were like, don't go work for that guy, you'll get yourself in trouble. Mm. My my guys back in Philly, and this is the specialist of John Calipari. I know people probably in Indiana don't want to hear this. So when we really got into it, he really wanted to hire me. He knew the people in Philly were telling him, telling me, don't go work for him. So he came down there. And he sat down with the two guys he knew we had to sit down with, John Hardnett and my dad. And he sat down with them and said, don't worry, I'm going to take care of yourself. Wow. That was it. So tell, and this is going to be a hard pill to swallow for every Indiana fan, but tell us something about Jan, John Calipari that we just don't know. <laughs> when you're with him, well, he has this innate ability to remember everybody. You know that. Mm -hmm. Right? And he can meet you once and he can do that. But when you work for him, it's like a smorgasbord. You eat from all types of stuff. Basketball, business, money. I mean, he 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 got it going. When you when you when you're around him, you know it. We got close because I used to drive him everywhere when I was his assistant. So, you know, me and him were driving. We just didn't talk about basketball in a team. You know, Cal, we grew up very similarly. You know what I mean? We weren't, you know, didn't have a lot of money and uh you know, he, you know, we start being comfortable around each other, talking. Uh, I used to, and this is why I appreciate it, Bob. I used to drive him when we first got to UMass. And the first few times I would drive him, he would say, all right, come back and pick me up in two hours. Because he was meeting with some important people and things like that. So come meet, come back and pick me up a couple hours. All right. So I'd be in Boston because that's where you had to go most of the time. I'd be in Boston. I'd go hang out, meet some people, do all that stuff. So this one time he says, uh, uh, get dressed. We go to Boston, get dressed, blah, blah, blah. and he started bringing me into meetings. Mm. And he started sort of teaching me how to be a part of this. Not just about basketball, you know what I mean? About the things that go on other than just being in coaching. You know what I mean? The people you have to deal with and all those things like that. Uh, the money that goes in, uh, that's involved in this stuff. You know? How to sit down and talk to a guy who's a provost or or, or, or VP or whatever, you know what I mean? He started bringing me in, in, in to those things. And again, I was the only black guy in the room most of the time. I mean, so for him to put me, he had to really trust me to put me in those situations. He had to really did it. And, that, and that's one of the things about him. And unbelievably loyal. You never hear a guy that he coached for him or played for him that says anything bad about him. Now, you can be crazy. I ain't going to lie about that. <laughs> but 
in the end, he's going to take care of you. If he can, he's going to do whatever he can to take care of you. That's the he's, one thing. He also has a larger than life personality. I mean, yeah. his press yeah. conferences are legendary. The guy, he knows what he's doing. He uses it to recruit and to be yes. the thing that he is. Give us some funny behind the scenes story, either recruiting on the road with him, something, something that happened funny that you guys will still talk about or that you'll bust his chops for. Uh, well, one of the things as assistant coaches and, uh, and me, him and Billy, we were the assistants at, at you back then. Only three guys go out recruits, so me and him and Billy. So we had some funny times because we actually used to get, it was back in the day where you didn't have no money at UMass. We would get a room, right? It'd be one bed. All three? So me and Billy would, you know, uh, paper, scissors to see who slept in the bed when the other person slept on the floor. <laughs> right? Yes. So me and Billy actually... Me and Billy, actually, for half of the school year, we drove the same car. Luckily, we lived together because we had to drive the same car. So if I went recruiting, he couldn't go. He had to stay here. <laughs> right? So luckily, we lived together. So we went to work every day with each other, right? So, but everybody that works for Cal, we laugh because you guys can appreciate this because you remember, we says, he's unbelievable in the home. Like, in, in the home, it's like, you know, he used to, we used to laugh because you say, we want me to do today. You want me to put him on the ether? That's what he used to say to me all the time. Right? <laughs> so I'd be like, ah, nah, this is just a straight up one. We don't need to, we don't need no ether. Today. We don't need no ether. Just <laughs> need straight up, straight up talk to them. But we say, we used to sit him in a chair and we used to pull that string behind his back. You know, the dolls we used to pull the string <laughs> We pull it back and we let it go and we just let him talk. <laughs> Everybody that works for him, we all tell that story because once he gets motoring, oh man, forget about it. So, you know, so that's one of the things about it. But uh, we had some, we had, we had some pretty interesting ones, some, some funny ones where we, we were recruiting this kid who actually ended up playing, he actually ended up coaching him again at Memphis. And uh, it was probably 90, almost 100 degrees. We were in New York, we were in the projects. And we're giving this home visit. They had no air. Fame. I'm telling you, it had to be one of the hottest days. And, and I mean, everybody's in the room. They're pouring down sweat. Cal, he talking and he moving around. So, I mean, he is absolutely drenched. So, I'm barely sweating, right? So, we had to walk up the steps because the elevator was broken in, oh, in, okay. in the housing project. So we had to walk, they lived on like the 10th floor. So we walking down, plus back then those days, like walking into housing projects back then, you never knew it was gonna be on the steps or anything like that. <laughs> Diapers with poop on them and all that stuff like that. You know what I mean? So, so we walking. So as we're walking down the steps, he said, you barely fucking sweated while we were in there. And I told him, I said, my mom said, when it's hot, just be still. <laughs> <laughs> and he always talked about that today because he was absolutely almost getting naked as he was walking down the steps. <laughs> That's how dressed he was from being in the from being in the thing. So, but uh, but now we had to, he he's he's a he's a anybody that's ever been in a home with him and sitting do a home visit, they come out they be like, oh my god, what just hit me? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's that that's how he is. And uh, and I think Arch is actually pretty good in the homes, and Arch is really good face to face. You know what I mean? But you know. Uh, but 
cow. Yeah, he's different. He got, he got some stuff for you now. You just look at him sometime like, did you really just say that? <laughs> Do you remember well, something specific that he said that you just were like, how does a guy say that and get away with it? I'm going to tell you one thing we did one time. This kid was a really, really good player. We were just starting at UMass. And uh, uh, I'll give you two UMass stories. So we were just starting at UMass. And this kid was in Boston. And he was a really good player. He was like a top 30 player in the state. So we can stop top 30 player in the country. So we go to his house and we're sitting there and Cal giving this feel. And the kid said something really uh, ignorant to his mother. So Cal stops right there and goes, you got anything? You got anything? And the kid was like, coach, that's it. He's like, after what you just did, I'm out of here. And we got up and we left. Hmm. So those are the types of things that he was like, if he gonna treat his mom like that, when we left, he was like, if we gonna treat his mom like that, what do you think he gonna do with me? So that was one, that's some of the things that, you know, that you learned that he did that really keep it real with Cal in that respect. The other crazy visit was where Travis Best, y'all know Travis Best. Sure. So Travis Best, was, Travis Best was from Springfield, Mass. He's about 20 minutes away from us. And, uh, uh, greatest kid in the world. Came to our camps at UMass, all that stuff. And, you know, he's a top 10 high school player. You know, McDonald's All-American. He throws us a bone. He puts us, let us come in on a home visit. We got absolutely no shot at getting him. I think it was, uh, this is probably my, my second year, Cal's third year. We got no shot. We got no shot at getting trapped, right? So we're in the, the, now, the people in Springfield at this time, UMass had been one of the worst programs right. in the country, right? So the people there, we're in there, Cal gives his spiel. Travis's sister starts laughing. She's like, come on, man, no way. She's killing Cal in this home visit, right? So Cal said, in the next four years, I'm gonna be in the final four. Even I looked at him like, oh, this guy's in mine. <laughs> I'm like, oh my, this guy, he done really went crazy with this one, right? Four years later, we're in the final four. Talk, talk to us about that. Now, you, you stood <laughs> so, earlier. Yo, it's four years later, we're in the final four, and I used to see Travis's dad because, you know, Springfield's the closest city to, to the Amherst, and I'd be in Springfield on a dinner, so I would run into Travis's dad, and he would talk to me about that day. He says, that guy sat in there and said, four years from now, we're going to be in the final four. God damn it, if he didn't just do it. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm surprised Calipari doesn't send the sister a card every year, like reminding her. And that, <laughs> would be, that would be something that he would do. Was little, she was embarrassing to the point. I was getting ready to say, yo, you know what I mean? But that's how bad it was. That's how bad it was. And Cal was like, in four years, it'll be in the final four. I looked over there, I was like, oh, wow. He didn't just but, say that, bitch. You know, that's, it, real quick, Ward, I know you, you had a question about the final four run, but I just want to pick up on something that you just talked about right there. We, we've talked to, obviously, Archie. We talked to Mike Roberts. We've talked to people about, you know, what is the pitch? Like, how do you pitch a recruit? We've heard a little bit of that. But I am interested in the craziest thing that a parent or a sibling or a recruit has said while you are recruiting them, like in an in-home, like, like the sister going nuts there. Do you remember any other in your time of somebody saying something that just made you just question what the hell you were even doing there? No, nah, because I think you always have to make sure who you're going to see. Ah. 
So you screen it out first. Uh, you go screen it out first. I've been in there with some mom. When I was a head coach, uh, it was a kid. His sister actually is one of the all-time great players at, uh, uh, at UConn, Brooke Sales. Okay. And, and I remember going in, and his mom drilled me. Because at that time, we was going through the whole Camby thing. And she kept telling me, I don't know why you're here. Y'all going on probation. My son ain't going nowhere. We're going on probation. And I wanted to strangle this woman that night. But, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I was nice. Actually, it was so bad that the kid in the high school coach, when we walked out, they apologized. And the sister, because she came in a little later, they apologized. They're like, sorry, man, I, I didn't mean to go through that. But I think you know what you're getting yourself into before you go in there. So... So it's not going to be anything crazy other than maybe some kids running in and out of the the, 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 the room. I always like the ones where the mom cooked. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been to someone's mom's had some spreads, man. It was like, <laughs> well, you ate so much, you couldn't even do any talking. You ready to go to sleep. So, but I've been to some ones that, that, that those are the ones that I enjoy. But most of the time, you have a good feel for, for going in there and doing. We never, I've never been a part of anybody that was wild enough. Uh, uh, you know, Jimmy V used to have uh, Tommy Better Marco. He got undressed. You know what I mean? Yeah. He would get undressed and have NC State. You know what I mean? And so we, had, we we ain't do nothing. We ain't do nothing like that. It was not, nothing crazy that way. So, um, so yeah, I just wanted to circle back around to to that experience of going to the Final Four because obviously you're going to go back multiple times with Indiana. But this was the sneak preview of this when you went there with with Coach Cal. And what was that like for a Philly kid? who didn't even believe it when when your head coach said it to a recruit that four years later, there you are. What, what's the experience? What was it like for you? I mean, you know, we, we had been good for like three years in a row. So we felt as though actually the team that we thought would go to the final four was the year before. Because hmm. we had Lou Rowe, hmm. who probably Marcus Canby and Julius Irving are the top three players in the history of UMass. Lou Rowe was the one who started it for us. He put us at a different, he put us at a different level. He gave us a team that uh, when we got Lou Rowe, we, we went from being a team that was just good in the A-10 that could play nationally because that's how good he was. Wow. And then once we got Marcus, boom, that was it right there. Uh, but the year before, we thought that was the best team we ever coached. Mm. It was the deepest team Right, we had Lou, we had Derek Kellogg, who's a coach at LIU now. We had uh, Marcus, we had uh, you know Dante Bright, who's a top five high school player. Dana Dingle, we had a good bench. The, the, the Puerto Ricans, uh, 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 actually Carmelo really didn't play, but Edgar played. Like we had, we went eight nine deep. I mean, we were good. I mean, we were good, and we lost to Oklahoma State in the Elite Eight that year. Uh, and uh, the next year, we're a little nervous because Marcus had never really played the way he played. Hmm. So one of the things we would talk about in the office was, do we think he can take it up another level? Plus, we only played six players. Hmm. Wow. Right? So Charlton Clark was a freshman, and he was our, 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 one of our only guards that came off the bench, which gave us seven. He broke his foot at the beginning of January. Oh. So he didn't come back until we actually went into the NCAA tournament. So we played six players, six players that That's year. That's unheard of. So now Marcus, he did, he took it to another level. And one of the things I always tell everybody, the guys, now some of the guys, they're too young for them to listen to it, but they do ask me about Marcus. The best teammate I've ever been around as a coach. 
because Marcus didn't care about anything but winning. Wow. Even even up to the point, because back then everybody didn't go pro with it after their first year. It was his third year there. He just played his role. So it was almost like, okay, Lou is gone. Derek is gone. Our leaders are gone. Okay, I'm going to step up for y'all. I'm going to show y'all. I've been waiting for this. You know what I mean? I didn't have to do that because we had Lou. Now, you know what? I'm going to show you. And he just took he just took his game to a, to, a, to another level. Plus, Dante Bright was an unbelievable college player. So guys used to say to me in the A-10, I know Marcus is the best player in the league, the second best player is right beside him. Wow. <laughs> That's how good Dante Bright was. Undersized, tough. You know what I mean? Dana Dingle, another one. Undersized, tough. Uh, our guards, Carmelo, and you got to remember, Edgar played. Carmelo only played after we kicked Mike Williams off the team uh, midway through the year before. Wow. Mike Williams arguably one of the most talented players we ever coached at, but he was a fool. So we got rid of <laughs> So we, 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 we got rid of him and we kicked him off. And Carmelo, that's the only time he played. You know, me and Kyle had discussions about go get me somebody because Carmelo's not good enough. <laughs> oh, man, I, this kid ain't good enough, bro. And we had this kid who actually led the, led the Atlantic 10 and scoring from Pittsburgh named Tom Pipkins, and he said, get on me. You got me getting Carmelo, and Tom Pipkins is leading the league in scoring. Blah, 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 blah. So I'd be like, yo. But, and I had a lot of discussions with Carmelo. Dude, you're making me look bad. You got you to step it up and play, man, because this year, this year time. And if you ask anybody, they will say to you, they don't realize he played like a year and a half. If you talk to anybody, they would say he had this super duper career. He played a year and a half. Wow. But he came in, he was ready. We had those two guys, and we had this kid that came off the bench. We had Tyrone Weeks, who, and what we would do was we would shift either uh, Carmelo, I mean, not Carmelo, if Edgar, Edgar Padilla pretty much, him and Carmelo pretty much played the entire game. We never really took those guys out. And they were really good defenders, and they never fouled. Wow. That is everything. If anybody needed a blow, we would shift Dante or Dana to the perimeter. Tyro Weeks was a sub. He was sub for either uh, – he was sub for any of those three. So our interchangeable parts were actually really good on that team. And, uh, and we had another kid, Rigoberto Nunez, who's a walk-on force. And we used him as an emergency and, uh, until uh, Charlton came back in the NCAA tournament. But we played six players that entire year. But Marcus was so good because – Pretty much, you could play him as a guard. Right. So that's how good he was. The thing about Cal, one of the geniuses of him is, we never post Marcus up. Huh. Because he wasn't strong enough. <laughs> so we played him off of the lane, and he would face up and drive you. But he was a, had a nice little 15-footer, and he could really pass and put it on the floor because it can be what people don't realize was he was 6'2 until the seventh to the 10th grade. So he was a guard. So his last two years of high school, he grew to be 6'11. Wow. And so he was more of a guard than he was a big guy. So Cal never posted him. Cal played him off the lane and we played our offense through that. And he could really pass and handle and do all those things. You know, Cal, it was funny because Marcus wasn't like the hardest working guy in the world. And I used to say to him in, uh, in the locker room, uh, you know, in the training room before practice, how long are you going to practice today? So he'd be like, man, Cal's going to have us out here for three hours. I was like, well, get, get, give us one of them performances. You want to be out here? 
So he would block shots, rebound, and take it to lift and forward pass. After about 45 minutes, Calvo, we can't get no better than that. <laughs> Let's, go. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. We ready. Let's go. So, you know, but that's the type of player Canby really was. And, you know, that's why he played in the league for 17 years. And I mean, even ahead of his time. He, you yes, know, that- yes, yes. Unbelievable on defense. Unbelievable defensive player. We played Princeton, and they back cut us to death. He blocked like 15 shots. <laughs> right. He so was afraid. They, they were back cutting us so bad, and he just go get he take one step from Because his man was actually, they played with a high post big. So his man was actually at the, at the, uh, at the, at the foul line, right. he, would take one, he would take one step, boom, go get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, was going absolutely nuts down the other end of the game. So, but. Before we get to uh, you taking over the reins there, I got to ask you about one other momentous thing that happened during your stay at UMass, which is, of course, the John Cheney press conference. <laughs> so... <laughs> Where were you when that all happened? And what is your perspective on it? Uh, it's funny because one of the things about the whole thing with the UMass and, and Temple thing was that Lou was from Atlantic City, Lou Rowe, and they didn't recruit him. Mm-hmm. He'd have went there if they didn't. They thought he was too small. And so Lou loved Philly. So during my recruitment, I would get him up to Philadelphia and play in the leagues and stuff. Uh-huh, nice. He loved it. Right. That's he loved it because he's from AC, which is about 45 minutes away. So he would get up there. So one of their assistant coaches, when I used to go to Philly, because Tyrone Weeks is from there, I've recruited Philly a lot. So I would go in there and one of their assistant coaches would talk about, you guys think you're you're us, because they they dominated the league. Right. And I used to say to him, we coming. <laughs> okay. So he used to say to me, I don't know why you think you're coming. I said, you see that guy? Lou was probably playing in the summer league. You see that dude that just walked out that door right there? You're going to see why we're coming. <laughs> and there was another guy who, you know, he, he passed away. And uh, one of the assistant coaches, uh, Jim Maloney. And Jim Maloney used to always say to me, the biggest mistake we made was not getting Lou Rowe. Wow. He was like, yo, he says, bro, I used to beg him, man. They say, oh, he's not big enough, he says. I'm telling you, this guy different. Plus, Lou Rowe practiced like he was trying to make the team. Mm-hmm. He was one of them types of guys. So it was easy to coach and easy to coach everybody else because of the way he was. Yeah. So, I mean, and he dominated, dominated the league. I mean, it wasn't even close. Mm. And he just made the difference. So I saw John Cheney, though, do it before. So I'm at, I'm at St. Joe's, and back then we used to play double headers in the Atlantic 10. And I'm not sure who we were playing, but they were playing. Temple was playing GW before us. Gary Gimmelstab, who actually was an assistant coach here at Indiana, okay. was the head coach at uh, at GW. So right before halftime, they meet at the scores table at the Palestra. And I see John Cheney grab everybody on the team. He's like, Joe, look at Coach Cheney. He grabbed them around the neck. <laughs> right? 
at the scores table at the palestra and everybody broke it up. But we're like, oh my God, Coach Jaden just went after that guy, right? <laughs> right? So now we're playing them at the cage. And they have won 23 straight games against uh, uh, UMass at the time. So Cal says to me, I just wanted to uncross his legs, man. Like, you know, <laughs> guy, guy crosses his legs when he's playing. It's like, not a big deal. I put the guy to uncross his legs. This night, he uncrossed his legs. And it was so crazy in the gym. Cal actually goes up to him one something happened. Cal goes up to the scores table. He started buzzing the clock to stop play. <laughs> what? In the middle of the play? In the middle of the play, he starts buzzing the clock and stop playing. John Cheney jumps up and literally runs at him. If someone assisted wasn't there, he reached out. He'd have grabbed Cal. They'd have been wrestling right there at half court. <laughs> right? So that was it. That started it because they knew at that point in time, okay, things going to be a little bit different. These guys are better. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when everything went down after the game, because we beat them at the buzzer, Oof. right? So the guys on the team, Aaron McKee, who's a coach at Temple now, you know, young guy, he grew up, I, you know, he was one of my young guys. Good and player. And I talked to him all the time. So afterwards, I asked Blue, I said, yo, what happened? What happened? Why coach lose his mind? So he says, the assistant came in after the game was over and said, Cal was complaining about the referees. And the only reason why we won, only we, we got away winning, it was no help from the refs. Oh. So they said, so Aaron McKee and Eddie Jones, they both told me that they said, Coach literally jumped out of his seat <laughs> and ran into the, ran into the, uh, uh, the media room, and that's when it started. So Cal, I'm in the locker room, Cal comes to me, right? And I don't really believe it because he's like, bro, he tried to attack me. Da, 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 da. But Eric and, uh, and, and Mike come back and said, yo, he went after Cal. Right? I thought they was going to fight and all this stuff like that, right? And they would laugh because it's like, Cal act like he's going to go back at him, but he knew he was going to stop him. Cal, <laughs> <laughs> everything calms down. Cal says to me, he goes, uh, you ever seen anything like that? And I said, yeah. <laughs> I saw him go after Gary Dimmelstein. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the first one, buddy. Believe me. And he got the Gary Dimmelstein. Yeah. And oh, that was a circus after that, though. But yeah. So wow. So your Cal's time at UMass is ending. He's heading off to the NBA, mm -hmm. and you get the shot to your first head coaching job at a pretty big place, coming off of huge success. It is never easy replacing a guy that has had huge success. What was that whole time period like for you? When did you know you were going to get the nod? And just what was it like for you uh, stepping into that role? Kyle asked me, he said, you want to go with me or you want to stay and be the head coach? So he said, you help build it. You know what I mean? So if that's what you want to do, I'll make sure you become the head coach. Wow. What I should have made sure was, that the guy I was working for wanted me to be the head coach. Ah. Okay, so we go back and he said, look now, if you can come with me, we go to NBA, you know what I mean? We do all this, because I was actually going to all the meetings and stuff with him, uh, with, the, with the Mets people and stuff, but he was like, if that's what you want to do, you know what I mean? You, I'll make sure you get the job. You deserve it. I had actually interviewed for a couple of jobs. I actually interviewed for St. Joe's, I had interviewed for Northeastern, so I had interviewed for a couple of jobs. 
So I wanted to be a head coach. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. So, uh, so I was like, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be it. Now he actually said it to me. He said, you know, it ain't gonna be easy. We just went to the final four. You're losing everybody. You know, Mark, uh, uh, Mark was going pro. Dana and Dante were uh, um, uh, seniors. You know what I mean? So we're losing most of that team. We're starting, sort of starting over a little bit. Now we had a good recruiting class, but we were starting over a little bit. And, uh, but I wanted to be a head coach. You know what I mean? It, it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted it. So, so he was just like, I got you. And at this point, I know you said that Coach Cal takes care of you financially. And at this point, I'm sure you're doing pretty well. But you're a kid from Philadelphia, didn't grow up with a lot of money, financial aid to help you through school, scholarship in college. And now you're signing a head coach Division One job. I assume this is now kind of life-changing money. What... Come on, bro. Did you show out a little bit? What did you, what, <laughs> no, did you, what'd you I, go by? I mean, what did my, it feel like? Give us something. Now, now, my contract was, was uh, I'm a, I have a finance degree. Oh, okay. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, like, people, like, people look at me, they'd be like, ah, I, mean, I have a finance degree. So I was going to be a money manager. That's what I was going to school for. Wow. I wanted to let me go on Wall Street. You know what I mean? Let me do that. That's what I went to college for. All right? So in terms of showing out, no, Cal always says I got the first nickel I ever had in my life. <laughs> so I didn't do it, but I'll be honest with you, like even towards the end of my career, my last two years, I had a couple opportunities where people called Cal and said, hey, look, man, we want to talk to Brew. And, and this was as an assistant, not even being a head coach. Mm. You know what I mean, this, I, we want to talk to Brew. So what Cal did was he said to me one day, you're only gonna leave here if you wanna be a head coach. I'm gonna make it so nobody's gonna outbid me for you. So that's one of the things that he did. And that's then, good. you know, so now to come to the game and do, I do, I do get paid. Yeah. But I'll be honest with you, when I got paid, that's when I sort of found out also too about the people I was gonna really work for. Really? So that quickly, you found out that you were not welcome, you were not their guy? Because, and I know I wasn't going to get, because you got to understand, I wasn't knew I wasn't going to get what Cal was going to get. Sure. But, because uh, Cal's, uh, you know, Cal, I'll tell you, his first couple of years at UMass, he made like 60,000 bucks. You know what I mean? That's how I was. It was the 90, late 80s, early 90s. That's, that's how you got paid. You know what I mean? Right? My, my first three years as an assistant, I made $30,000 full time. You know what I mean? Right? You know, like, he make no money. You know what I mean? It wasn't like that. So, now, I, I know it, but when we started getting into the contract, I got an idea what I was going for. Mm, because you knew they were undercutting what your worth was. Well, I, 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 here's a guy, he's my best friend. He tells me what he got. Right. <laughs> this is what I got. And he actually was telling me, you probably won't get this, but you should get this. And it was hard. Now, I got paid. I'm not going to lie. I made a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> 1995, 96. You know what I mean? I, I got paid. Yeah. Did you, did you, were you able to, did you buy your parents anything at that time? Uh, I, my mom would never leave even to the day, right? My dad, though, I always tell him, y'all know about layaway. These guys don't know about layaway. I said, everything you did for me, you put it on layaway because I'm paying for it now. <laughs> <laughs> when he was alive, 
he got everything he wanted out of me. So <laughs> I put him a car, things like that. I fixed up my mom's house, although she won't move out of the place. You know, I did all those things like that. You know, I didn't. I, I did those types of things. But you know, I've always been pretty good with my money. So um, you know, I've always. Uh, so that's always been a good thing. I've been a good saver. I had some good investments. You know what I mean? So so that's that's always been a always been a thing. So it kind of runs its course there at UMass. Obviously, it seemed like now in hindsight, at least, or maybe even when you got into those contract negotiations, it was kind of doomed from the beginning. But you get a fresh start at Drexel. You go back home. You're coaching in Philly. What was that like coming into that program and, you know, not living in the shadow of somebody like Coach Cal? Uh, I mean, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I didn't mind not living, I mean, mind living in the shadow of Cal. I actually go back now and I see what I did. Nobody's replicated it. Right. There has been no success like that since. They thought I was a failure. Two NCAA tournaments, right? And one NIT in your five, six years. Five years. Five years, yeah. They would take that in a heartbeat right now. Bruiser, Indiana would take that in a heartbeat. So it was one of those things where it was like, you know, I didn't, I didn't worry about that. I actually thought some of my, I actually thought we were on our way. You know, the whole thing that happened with Marcus, uh, you know, that, that, that stumped us a little bit. But Did that happen right away for you, right when you stepped yeah, in? my first year. So that's so what the hell was that like, dealing with I mean, that? It was, it, was, it was tough. And again, I go back to the guy that I worked for, and he didn't help me through it. Right. I just handled it myself. But I actually thought we were turning the corner. You know what I mean? Like, we're getting some good players. We had some good recruiting classes. Things were going to get better, uh, but by that time I was gone. So, and it, it was—I it, it, will say this: the one of the reasons why I was only out of work for about three weeks as a head coach was because I think other people saw that too. Right. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I actually had calls during the season because they know they everybody that <clears throat> had calls from people during the season saying, "Hey, man, that thing don't work. I want to talk to." I actually had two meetings at the Atlantic 10 tournament with two schools who were firing their coach from the same league. They came in my room and knocked on my door. Wow. ADs came in my room. One was an AD. The other one was a representative from the, from the conference that you're in. It was all in the same hotel in A-10 tournament. And a guy knocked on my door and said, yo, what's going on? And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, yo, if you don't come back, I want to talk to you. Wow. One guy knocked on my door because I'd known him for a long time. The other guy talked to me in the lobby. So we had made it to the finals. So, you know, we was there the whole time. We lost in the finals that year. And the one school I actually sat down, I visited twice. I actually thought that's where I was going. Uh, and uh, one of the other schools, I always teased my assistants that the day – I came back two days later, I got fired. We lose two days later, I get fired. The next day, I was on a job interview. And I and the guy was like, yo, this is your job if you want. And I told my assistants, the money is so low, we're gonna have to all live together, all our families. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it was a division one school, so I was like, we're gonna because you know where the school was. I was like, we can't afford to live here by ourselves, so we're gonna all have to live together. <laughs> <laughs> So, and then actually Drexel was the last school to call. And I was surprised that they actually fired their coaches. They only been there for two years. Yeah. 
And I knew, and I knew those guys because once in a while I would go back to Philly and play lunchtime hoop with those guys at drugs. Nice. All right. So, you know, I didn't know the administrators. I just knew Billy Herring and, 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 uh, and Steve and those guys, but we would go play lunchtime hoop once in a while I was in Philly. And they were the last school to call me. And uh, a guy, Tony Canaris, he was like, look, I want you to come back, you know, you know, you know, be a part of it. And my dad, he was like ecstatic. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? So I, tell you, I had to tell my, my, my wife at the time, yo, we're going to take a serious pay cut, but we're moving to Philly. <laughs> was she from Philly? No, nah, she's from New York. Oh, okay. All right. And she wasn't big on it at first because it was like, you're going to go back there and you're going to be hanging out with all your friends. I know how it is when you go back there. Yeah. You're going to be hanging out with all your friends. But it, it, it wasn't like that at all. It was, it was good. Well, look, you go back home and you did do something that very few people get to do. I mean, there's 350 college basketball programs. You got to go home and you built something. You built it over 15 years. And, you know, right now, I don't know what the average lifespan is in college basketball, but it's got to be, what, five, six years, maybe, uh, of a head coach. What what did it feel like to go back home, get your roots in, and really build a program that you wanted to build? Uh, I love being back home. I ain't going to lie. Philadelphia is a is, – there's not a better basketball city in the country, pro high school and college. Put them all together. There's no one best. No, no thing. But they, they cover high school. They, I mean, they cover it. Like you know, so it's, it's nothing like now. Here I come back. I become the head coach at Drexel, and uh, you know what? You know, Drexel's not in the Big Five, right. and people didn't really realize that. You know what I mean? Are you going back? No, no, I'm not. I'm not coaching in the Big Five. Plus, they were going to a new conference, the CAA. They were in the. Uh, right. East and now they were going to the to the CAA with uh, Hofstra, uh, Towson, and uh, Drexel was one other school. Missing somebody. Wasn't St. Louis in the CAA for a while? No, no, they weren't in the no? CAA. Okay. CAA, VCU, Old Dominion. Oh, okay. Mason. So you know, I actually started looking at the films of the you know other other teams in the league. I was like, oh boy, we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Just the size of the player alone, I was like, man, we're in trouble with this thing right here. But I love being back home and the people there, the media and all those people that there, they treated me great. It was like, welcome back. It's one of, it's one of our own coming back, Coach Drexel, you know what I mean? All those things like that. And then, you know, we started, we started beating them. Yeah. Started beating a couple of those teams. And, um, and now it really got big. You know, my biggest regret is that we never made it to the, to the NCAA tournament. That 29-win year, you should yeah, have gotten that big. Actually, though, shit. everybody said that the 29-win year was not probably the year, although we won 20 in a row that year. The year that they said that I should have won, I should have went to the NCAA tournament and we were on the bubble, uh, was uh, I went, we went 25 and 8 or something like that. And we won 14 road games. Was that the year you beat Syracuse? Yeah, and Villanova, Creighton, we won all those I games. Mean, what the hell? We lost. The league, though, was really good that year. And it was one one thing about you in those leagues, and Kyle used to get on me about this all the time. Man, forget about the regular season. Just worry about the weekend. Only one team is going to make it from your conference. Uh, and he yeah. was absolutely right. You know what I mean? The only thing about the conference was 
we had two teams that went to the Final Four during my time there, you know, VCU. VCU, right. So the league was really hard. And I want to say in the, they've only had four times in the history of the league where they sent more than one team to the NCAA tournament. Oh. So it was hard. You, you, you weren't winning. Our facilities weren't good. Drexel was a very high academic school, so you had to bring the right type of kid in there. And um, but, I know I know you won't make any excuses because you're not that guy. But I did some research on your time at Drexel, and just reading like season by season, like stories of the season, I don't remember reading about another program that had catastrophic injury after catastrophic injury year after year. It seemed like you were derailed by injuries, especially in your last what, half dozen years there? Uh, no, I, I would say probably the last three out of the last, but last four years, we had some really, really hard, uh, really tough injuries. Um, the best team I thought I ever had there um, uh, was, I can't remember the year, but uh, Damian Lee, and, and we had went to the, we had went to the NIT, right. uh, Final Four to NIT, and Damian Lee blew his knee out uh, against Arizona. Uh, we were playing Arizona in a tight game. He blew his knee out in the last five minutes of the game. Then that same year, but that was the first time I really had some depth. Like we had like nine players. Like, but you know, when you're at the mid-major level, you're eight or nine guys. You can put them in for a little bit, but they ain't guys that you can. You know, <laughs> so not only did we lose Dame, but we actually also two lost uh, this kid named uh, Kasimbe Abif, who was my starting power forward. Mm. He ended up breaking his. He ended up. Uh, uh, straining his knee for a month. Then when he came back, he broke his arm. Oh, I mean, you just can't. Uh, a so team like Duke. That was, that was by far my most talented team I ever had. We ended up winning 17 games that year. And then the, the changer was, you know, this is, uh, and the changer, the changer was coming. So the next year, I knew we weren't going to be that good. We were losing a lot of those guys. And then, uh, you know, that next year, we weren't bad. The following year is when Dame left. And I not only did Dame leave, but you know, to go to Louisville, but uh, uh, I had another kid on my field who I thought was my second best player. He got hurt, mm. and that was it right there. We we were terrible. I mean, we got absolutely clobbered. But uh, you know, I was listen. I was there for fifteen years. 15 I know. Years. I know what they said. All right, bro. Enough's enough. You know what I mean? Like we're Hell paying run. one. We're paying you a lot of money. So. <laughs> I do want to. By that time, I had been getting. I had got a lot of money out of them, and they yeah. were like, "No, this wasn't like my first few years. Like I was starting to get paid, paid again." <laughs> like, all right, bro. All right, bro. Enough's enough. You ain't get to the NCAA tournament. We're gonna try something different. When you know, hey, I always my like the guy I told you about Eric. You know, we had a funny thing one time. We met the final four. He says, "You know, I had a lot of extra interviews with people, but." Yours is unbelievable because I knew he was going to fire me, right? You know, he's been going around. So I only won five games. So I walk in and the HR person is there, right? A lady. And they're like looking at me and everything, right? And I said, I'm not worried about this. Y'all still owe me. <laughs> Y'all still owe me. Just talk about how much y'all going to pay me, right? I get paid. So the lady actually said to me, well, what do you want to do? And I said, can y'all pay me like I'm on a sabbatical so I can keep my medical insurance? Mm. And she says, let me go to the the, the, uh, the president. So he actually sent me a text and said, we're going to take care of you. Don't worry about it. Wow. That is so, I love the, the money manager comes in yeah. knowing yeah. what's going on. My ex, I was like, Eric, we ain't got to sit down there and talk. We hug. 
the lady said it was one of the greatest things and she said we still get messy sometimes bruiser right so i was like really she says but you came in it's like yo don't, it, it lasted about five minutes mm, wow I said, I said don't worry about it man i know the deal i said we had a good run 15 years me and you together we had a great time we, had, we did some great things here don't worry about it. Let's just talk about this money y'all owe me because y'all still owe me. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I said. That's what I said to him. So that was it. So so you you're you're free. You're free as a bird. Mm -hmm. And I I remember you being interviewed after you had accepted the position at Indiana of, of what you did in that time uh, when you didn't have a job and and you got out there and you saw what some other programs and coaches were doing. So I just wanted to hear a little detail when you were deciding if you wanted to coach anymore and, and what you were learning uh, about coaching that maybe you don't get exposed to when you're doing your own thing for 15 years. Well, a lot of things had changed. I was getting a divorce, okay, through all this stuff. My daughter was going on to college. You know, she was, she was uh, I want to say a sophomore or a junior in college. And uh, so I was really by myself. And uh, so actually Cal and my agent was like, take the year off. Rejuvenate yourself. Yeah, especially because Drexel was still paying your ass. <laughs> That's a true sabbatical. That's exactly what my, my agent was like, dude, you're getting ready to get a lot of money to sit home. <laughs> We're going to no, try but, but But you used it. I mean, you use yes. the time, yeah. And he said, uh, we're going to try. He says, look, uh, I'll get you on TV. If you like it, we'll do the TV thing. If not, he says, we'll, we'll, we'll be involved with some stuff, or you can go be a high level. My agent said, you'll be a high level assistant if that's what you want to do. One of the things, because I think I've done well with my money, I didn't come back to work because I had to. Right. I came back to work because I wanted to. If I wanted to, I could have just chilled. You know what I mean? Yeah. There have been some things that have been different, but I had done pretty well, even with the divorce. You know what I mean? I, I, know. <laughs> I think Bruce and I went through a divorce at the about. same exact time. Oh, yeah. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Writing those mortgage <laughs> checks every month is really fun. Yeah. So, but, but, so I went around. <laughs> so what I did was, honestly, the reason why I did it is because Fran Dunphy, um, Phil Martelli, and Jay Wright, as much as we have been around each other in all those 15 years, I, and Phil was an assistant coach for me at St. Joe's. He was an assistant mm -hmm. when I played. I had never went to a practice and watched those guys practice because we always played them. Right. So one of the things, one of the first things I did was I called those guys up and come to practice. I wanted to see how they worked. You know what I mean? How they operated. So I probably went to about pro and college, probably about 15 practices. You know, I went to hung out with Cal, came here. Came I was going to say, including you, I remember when you showed up with Tom yeah. Crean as the head coach. Uh, uh, Chuck Martin, he worked for me at, the, at, at UMass and Drexel. Oh, that was uh, the connection. Yeah, okay. so I was in Lexington, actually, with Cal, and I called him up, and me and Larry Brown, Larry Brown, we were all we were together in Lexington. We had spent 10 days with Cal, and uh, so we went out with Xavier, Cincinnati, so we went to all these practices. I you know, knew all those guys, so we were... Uh, uh, so we're, you know, how far is Indiana? I asked Chuck, how far? He says about three hours. So I said, all right, coach, you want to go? So me, him, and John Robert, the, one of Cal's assistants, we drove up to Indiana and we watched practice. I told Deron and those guys, I saw, I said, Deron, you wasn't practicing that day either that I came. <laughs> <laughs> right? 
So we went up there, Tom, we watched practice with Tom, and, you know, I just hung out with Chuck, and we talked, and me and Coach Brown, we drove back. So I went all over the place, pro and college, to watch guys, watch practices, things like that. Uh, uh, went up to Rutgers uh, because uh, Steve Pico, literally, I'm telling you, he drove to Philly. He called me a million times. He wanted me to come work for him during the time. Mm-hmm. I was like, look, I'm, 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 I'm taking the year off. But I'm telling you, he put an unbelievable effort to me to come and work at Rutgers. And he was like, yo, it's convenient. You're an hour, because it's only an hour, 15 minutes away from Philly, so it's yeah. really close. But I was like, you know what? I need, to, I need some time, so let me take the time off. And it was great for me. And it also gave me the idea of, you know what, bro, you can do. You know, one of the things that I'm going to say I regret it because I love my time. I love Philly so much that it was other opportunities I could have had, and I didn't take them because, you know what, I just love being home. Yeah, all sure. My, all my people, like my boys would come to the games. My camps were filled with all my guys. So I grew up with their kids, their grandkids. They all came to my camps. I was you know, going to say, in your 15 years at Drexel, I'm sure you had opportunities to explore other I had, jobs. I had, a couple, I had a couple opportunities. The only one job I really went after, and that was Temple, because all, instead of going right, I went left from where I lived at, right? Mm-hmm. Same, same distance away. But there were some other opportunities I could have taken. I love being at home. My family yeah. is every game. And when I got hungry, hungry, I just call my mom up and I drive 15 minutes and get some food. I mean, you know what I mean? My sister, like my boys, we come over the house, we hang out, you know what I mean? Those types of things like that. So it was so convenient for me. So during that year, it was like, all right, man, you know. And I had a great time during that year because I really hung out with my, my people then because, you know, I ain't had nothing to do. Like, I mean, go to basketball games, you know what I mean? Work out, you know what I mean? Do all those things like that. And then I said, and actually it was Sean who actually called me first and asked me was I going to retire. And then that's how we got the connection with Arch. But, you know, I recruited Arch in high school, so, you know, I know the family. Oh, you and, did? Yeah, yeah, I knew. I know his Uncle Tim and his dad. I mean, we go back, Sean, we go back a long, long way because they're real close with Cal. They grew up in the same neighborhood. Right. And you're all Pennsylvania kids. We're all Pennsylvania guys. They're from Pittsburgh, which is a town. I'm from Philly, which is a city. <laughs> <laughs> discussed that a lot. And so, you know, that was it. So it was like, all right, man, I'm getting ready to uproot myself. I've never done this. I've always been within four hours of my home. And mm-hmm. I'm going to move to Indiana. And I came out here. I actually came out here also, too, to hang with Billy, who was the assistant at the, with the Pacers. So I spent, I spent like five days with them going to watch practice. They played, they played LeBron at Cleveland. They played OKC. Uh, and they played Detroit, and I stayed out and I watched those three games. And I would go to practice, be a part of their meetings and stuff like that. So you know, that's I, great. I, that type of stuff. A lot of the so, guys, the pros, wanted me to be in the G League, but I wasn't ready for the G League. So, so I was like, Nah, I'm not going to do that. I'll just go back into college. So, so what was it about the situation? Obviously, there was uh, a family connection there. You knew the family there. You had to be comfortable with that. But to to uproot your life, to head west for the first time and drop yourself into this situation, what were the factors that made you say, this this is how I'm getting back into it? I know what one of the factors must have been. <laughs> A little bit of money. <laughs> I'll, be honest, I'll be honest with you, though. Not necessarily, not really. Okay. <laughs> Arch is probably the one, one of the only people I never negotiated with with the money. He just really? said, it is, and I was like, all right. I wasn't worried about it. You know what I mean? I, I'll be honest with you, it's Indiana. Yeah. I mean, like, I had never worked at a school like this. 
UMass wasn't like this. You know, UMass wasn't wasn't Indiana. Like, you know, I watched them on television. You know what I mean? I, you know, I saw the whole Bobby Knight thing. That's that's my era. You know what I mean? Like, so, you know, we all played all-star games against Steve Alfred. You know what I mean? So, you know, I, I, that, this is my era. So I was like, okay, like this, I'm going to really get a feel for big time basketball. If this is what they all say it is. And I, you know, I, you, know you got to trust Arch. Uh, you know, I had watched his, you know, watched his uh, career from, from uh, afar. Uh, we had actually recruited a couple guys against each other when he was at Dayton and I watched them. And so I know, okay, I'm going with a good guy. And, you know, I got some information on him. Some of the guys that, that coached against him in the Atlantic 10, they're like, yo, Brew, you know, he's good. You know what I mean? He'll be good. Now, you got to understand, he was the only guy I knew. I didn't know anybody else on the staff until Ed came. And actually, uh, Ed, you know, actually, Arch was like, call Ed, you know what I mean? Call Ed Schilling because he know me and Ed had worked together at UMass. But I hadn't known anybody. I didn't know T.O. I didn't know B.C. I didn't know none of those guys. So it was definitely a leap of faith in terms of myself. But I was like, I think I'm going to work with a guy who, who knows what he's doing. And I'm going to experience big-time basketball. This is Indiana. They say it's a, it's a blue blood. I'm going to see what it's all about. And, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it, it is what it is. And how, yeah, I was going to say, how does it compare to what you thought it was? Is it, does it feel different when you're in assembly hall or anything, press conferences, whatever, the bubble that is Indiana basketball, is it as big-time as you thought? Yes, it is. I mean, like uh, at Drexel, you know, our, our gym was like 3,000. <laughs> you know I mean? And actually, although the CAA was a good league, other than VCU and Old Dominion, I mean, you had fans. We, you know how they talk about having no fans? I remember we played Townsend one year. They were having a blizzard. And we played them, and they were going to cancel the game, but everybody was there. The refs, everybody was there to say, we're going to play. There was six people in the stands. <laughs> <laughs> senior night. You're ready oh, for it. And the it only people that night. were there were the parents of the, of the three seniors that they had. <laughs> <laughs> And I played in some games and you look around, it's like a hundred. I'm the division one coach. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I looked around like, oh, it's like 60 people in here tonight. So I've been, I, 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 you know, I experienced that. You know, we had, uh, UMass is only 9,500. You know what I mean? So, right. like, you know, so like, you, I, I, I never really, but I played in some places, you know, I've, you know, I've been in the Yum, I've been in the Lexington, I've been in some places, UCLA. I mean, I've been in some places where I played where I was the visitor. But not when you're walking in there every night and you're like, okay, all right. You know what I mean? This ain't bad. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you know, this is this is what, you know, for a long time, when we were in our final four runs, this is the type of electricity that you get for the games that gets you up as a coach also too. So in that respect, I will say uh, I haven't been surprised. It's been a great – it's lived up to my expectations. I mean, I, I tell everybody now all the time, like, well, y'all better come here before they either fire me or I leave. You better come here and watch a game. Mm -hmm. You ain't getting no better atmosphere than you're getting in this place right here. And I've had a lot of my boys come from Philly. And uh, one was one guy came from Louisville. Uh, a couple people came last year from Florida State. I mean, they were like, yo, a couple people came for Michigan State. They're like, yo, it's a little different, man. I was like, yep, yeah. it gets it going. They get it going in here. So the atmosphere... It's unbelievable uh, from a game to game thing. So, and that way, you know, I, I, you get excited about going into the games. Yeah. Uh, just putting the atmosphere itself, I will say that. Uh, 
you know, some of the other things, you know, like, you know, we, I think they've done a great, I think Arch has done an unbelievable job about, it's a shame about coronavirus because I actually thought we were going to go to the NCAA tournament and I actually thought we were playing really well enough to not only go, but win. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you know, were we going to go to the final four? I don't know about that, but I thought we can go and I thought we could play against anybody at that point in time, the way we were playing. And we had actually lost some games up to that point. You know what I mean? Some close games. But I thought the way we were playing were unbelievable. But I thought from day one, Arch had really built it. And this is where it goes a little cuckoo here <laughs> because people are like, what the? Yo, we've, we've improved our, we went to the tournament this year. We've improved our wins. We're more competitive. I know Arch on your podcast talked about now being better in the league, but we right there. Right. You know what I mean? We are right there. And I think he's done an unbelievable job of building it. And places take time. Now, I know all the history and all that stuff here at IU, and people can be a little bit impatient, but your, your Rome wasn't, wasn't done in a day. You know? <laughs> it wasn't built in a day. And, and I think he's getting to the point where, you know, when I go try to recruit somebody for him, I talk to him about, I think we're almost at that point where we can take that thing to that next level. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You, always, you always need players to do it. Some of the guys are recruiting. I think he did. I think he's got. He's gotten it to that point where you and can. And kids, do. kids are listening to that more than they would have in year I one. So. I mean, I hope so, so we can get a few of these guys. <laughs> but I think if you look at it and you really look at it, you got to say to yourself that he's doing what they're paying for him to do. Well, you know? what you guys as a, as a staff have done from just let's talk about recruiting for a second, just from the state of Indiana. I mean. We did a whole other thing on this. It's the first time in the history of Indiana University where we have three Mr. Basketballs from the state in three consecutive years. The first <laughs> time ever. Did well, you know that? Yeah, I knew that. But one of the things that we <laughs> yeah, Bruce, like, yeah, <laughs> What do you think I am? I get it. I'm a coach, <laughs> asshole. Let's go. <laughs> I mean, from my – and talking to the people, and not, not Arch saying this, but people outside of here, they were like, all right, you want to win Indiana? Yeah, yeah, we were, yeah, of course we do. Like, recruit the kids, recruit the kids from the state. People love that. Okay, and uh, uh, people love that you guys. You know, they want they want to win, but they want to win with Indiana kids. Okay, that's one of the things. So what we do? So we say, well, who's the best players in the state of Indiana? I don't know. I wasn't from here. Right. I mean, I, I did. I, I never really recruited the Midwest, Ohio, maybe a little bit, but I, I never was a Midwest recruiter. So, who was the top three players in the in the uh, uh, in the state our first year? Romeo, Rob, Demizi. <laughs> right. Got, Got him. him. Right. Next year, who's the best players in the state? Okay. Right. Trace. Trace. Armand. Keon Brooks. Got two out of three. All right. Now we have another recruiting class. Who the best players in the state? Well, we just got them. Yeah, all of them. Trey, <laughs> Anthony, Chris, and then Christian, one of the best players in the country. Yeah, so you know, so you're in there, and you're 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 doing what they tell, tell they they ask you to do. You know, got to put it together. You know what I mean? You know, it makes it a little bit harder. I think Romeo, us getting Romeo, made it cool again to come back to the school. You know what I mean? For the kids in the state, I will say this as a person who's going around the state and recruiting a little bit. I will say you're into it. Like if you think we got guy and we on it, y'all on, y'all on it. You know, I mean, people are on it. They at the games, like all these. You know, I say to myself, these guys are like seventy years old. They come into these high school games. The 
with, like, <laughs> oh yeah with the red uh, uh overalls on i'm like come on man <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. but, but you got you got two idiots from california who are coming out and going <laughs> to southport to watch games okay. all right so i mean like you know so i mean we've done those things and i think he's put it put us in a situation where we can do it now you got to do it i mean I, i'm real i was a head coach for 20 years i got i got fired so I actually definitely know what happens if you don't. Uh, but I think Arch has done an unbelievable job of getting us to that situation where, and like I said, that's where it goes back to saying uh, why we didn't make the tournament this year. You know what I mean? Like, you know, but not make it, but everything got shut down. And now such a, just I bad luck. That, that was the next step for us to, 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 to be able to do it. So. Well, I have to imagine, you know, because we're there on the message boards, we are the crazy Indiana fans that it really feels like the tide turned when we all realized, oh, this is an NCAA tournament team. The state has been effectively locked down. This is all undeniably going in the right direction. And I know it's more limited to Zooms right now, but do you feel that as a staff that the confidence of the fan base and and the state is is really starting to swell to the point where when you're talking to a recruit in state, there, there's what it's their coaches, their parents, their friends, they're all like, it's less of an uphill battle because they've seen the way it's being built and it's going to be something that sustains. I will say from day one, I think Arch has done an unbelievable job. You know, one of the first people we went to see was Rob Finnessy. Hmm. Okay. So that was our first, me and him, we go to his high school. And I think his presentation, I watched his mom and his high school coach. I know his high school coach was hyped up about Indiana being there. Uh, I'm sure Tom Crean have went in there a few times. You know, they, re they recruited him too. But I just think Arch presented to a point they were like, okay. Because I know his mom told me on plenty of occasions that if y'all didn't come, he wasn't going there. Hmm. You know what I mean? So I think it's also the person that's making the, the, making the presentation and making, being able to come up there and making it cool again to be an Indiana Hoosier. Uh, th th I think a lot of that has to do with it. Uh, uh, I I still am baffled about, and I know they had, Tom had some tough years and had some good players from from out of this area, and people still they didn't because it's, it's not going to always happen when we get everybody from Indiana <laughs> and they right, come. Right. So what I mean that, that you know I know Tom you know he had some tough years he didn't really you know he you know the expectations well the expectations here are always super duper high, but um, you know I think. Arch being able to do that when he first came back uh, was important. And I think he knew that and he made a concerted effort with that. Uh, and, and he's done it well. I mean, you got to give him credit. He's done it well from a person who's done this thing for a long time, who's a head coach for a long time. The toughest thing in his job is recruiting. And for you to sort of come in the base, I would put it to you this way. This is how I know when Arch has done an unbelievable job with it. When the other schools who were actually coming in here start to start to realize okay, we can't recruit these guys. Mm, like that. I like that. Yeah. You know I like mean? that. For a while, people came and they invaded the state. Oh, yeah. They didn't think they, they, they didn't, didn't worry about it. You know what I mean? They ain't going to Indiana. Right? I think it's a different mentality with those people now. Uh, so, you know, we just got to keep making the steps, keep taking those steps. And uh, and, uh, and and I think Arch is doing a great job with it. So, we talk, you talked a little bit about the big-time basketball atmosphere, which is phenomenal at the games. The fan base loves it. They're into it. There are some downsides to it also. There was an example that you found yourself in the middle of without doing anything. 
which was there was a game this year where the camera focused on you and Archie in the middle of a heated part of the game, and you two were in the middle of a heated conversation, and that got sent out on social media, and the crazy fan base went nuts. This shows that Archie doesn't have control even of a step, <laughs> right? And, and I remember at the time, I tweeted out something, because I, I was fortunate enough to be at the camp and be around you guys and get to know you a little bit, and I was like, I just see two guys who want to win who are just having a conversation. This is what sports is. But people lost their minds. When that happened, do, did you, were you aware that there was a buzz about that? On the way back, because you know, one thing about Purdue is we, we drive back. We don't fly. So, you know, I start getting all the, you know, I'm not one of those guys that goes on the on uh, Twitter all day and try to figure it out. So I start getting all the things. So I actually said it's an arch. And arch said they actually had that I hit him. <laughs> <laughs> I had punched him. Now, <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, and I, I, I put him in a bad situation. I apologized to him. I said, you know, when I, you know, really saw it, I knew I had put him in a really bad situation. You know, in coaching, I've been in situations like that, right? But I wasn't on TV. You know what I mean? That wasn't, you know, it wasn't going out virus. One tough thing about social media and all those things, and, and the announcers sort of said, "Yo, this happens," because it does. You know what I mean? But I knew I put him in a bad situation and he knew where I was coming from. He knew I wasn't questioning what he was doing, right? We were a little frustrated, you know what I mean? Plus, I think a little bit for me was, I didn't think Purdue was that good, you know what I mean? And we were losing to him. Uh, the other two teams we had played against, and we, and that, we, we've talked about this, the other two teams that had, we had played against that they had before this year, thought they were good. You know what right. I mean? They were a good team. This team, I thought they were stunk, to be honest with <laughs> you. We were losing to these guys again. You know what I mean, right? And, you know, it came out. But I, I put them in a bad situation and because uh, you don't want to do that. Uh, now, you do have your arguments on the bench and things like that. You know, I started waving my arms. I mean, I got into it a little bit. But I put them in a bad situation with that. But, but you only – but you're, you're being a little hard on yourself because you only put them right. in a bad No, no, no. That, I mean, that's, a, that's a, you know, like you, you, don't, you don't want to – I, I wasn't trying to show them up. Right, of that's course. What it, that's what it comes out looking like, especially nowadays. And now you got guys that you got on it and you made a great comment. Oh, they're just trying to be win. Most people, they ain't looking at it that way. You right. know what I mean? This is not the old days where you could do that and everybody laughed it off. You no. know what I mean? So, so I this, know, you know, everybody it, wants to create. Yeah, everybody so. wants to do but, it now. But I think the... she says, we're losing to Purdue. Right. And now right. it's like, oh, here we go. We're losing to these guys again. We stink. And I was like, yo. We haven't stunk all year. We just lost to Purdue again. You know what right. I mean? So, like, it's not, it's not one of those things. But I did put him in a, a bad situation. And I apologize to him because I, I, I've argued with my assistants my entire career. We actually talked about it on the Zoom the other day. They told me how crazy I could be sometimes, right? <laughs> but, again, it didn't go viral. I wasn't on TV. You know what I mean? It, it that's wasn't the downside of the environment. That's, that's the, very, the very downside of it. That's the tough thing about it. But I think the upside of your struggles with Purdue is that we were born and raised with a, an inherent hate for Purdue that you probably didn't have when you showed up in Bloomington. But with these first few seasons of struggling against them, can you now say that you, uh, that, that is the rival uh, to you and the staff who were sort of, you know, came in from afar with the exception of Mike Roberts. Do you, do you viscerally feel the rivalry with Purdue now? Uh, how can you not? I mean, just, you know, I mean, 
But I will say this, though. And we've discussed this a lot. Our guys get up for Michigan State more than they get up for Purdue. Really? That's I going think, well. I think so. I think so. I think that is the game. When I was at when I was at Drug, when I was at UMass, the rivalry, if you talk to anybody, well, who's your biggest rival? Right? If you talk to people in Massachusetts, they say the biggest rival is Rhode Island, because they're close. Man, we ain't think about Rhode Island, it was Temple. Hmm. You know what I mean? That was the game. When I was at when I was at Drexel, and we would talk about the rivalry, everybody would talk about Delaware. My players, Hofstra. Hmm. That was the game. That was their game. You know what I mean? So, in a way, like I I I've been around for a long time, so you, you respect your opponents and how good they are and what you do. But I'll be honest with you. Sometimes you say to yourself, "Why well, don't keep losing to these fucking guys?" <laughs> And like I said, our first two years, I thought they had really good teams. If the kid doesn't break their arm, they could go to the Final Four the one year. Yeah. Right. Almost, they almost went to the Final Four the next year. Probably should have gone to the Final Four the next I, year with some crazy luck. I mean, they've been, they've been good. I respect that. But when I looked at them this year, I was like, wow. You know, I don't know why. You know, give them credit. They beat us. I mean, I'm, I'm going to give them credit. You know what I mean? They, they beat us. If you're a coach and you don't see that, then you're out of your mind. But I just didn't think they had those teams that like I thought we were I thought we were better. You know, how, we, we lost to them. How good does it feel to beat Izzo and Michigan State three times in a row? <laughs> I mean, come on. I know how good it feels for me. It's funny because, you know, I know Tom for a long time and we're recruiting, he always comes up to me. I can't believe you guys keep fucking beating me. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, you fucking guys got my number. God damn it. Right, I was like, yo, he said, you guys come to play against us, right? We laugh about it and everything. He said, but I can't beat y'all. He said, I can't beat you. But those things happen sometimes. You know what I mean? You know, of all the schools, you would say, ah, you know, they're not going to beat Michigan State because they're in Michigan, but that's the team that we beat. And that happens sometimes in sports. That's the team that you beat. Well, and you just got to look at it of how these things sort of align to build a program for the long term in Michigan State was more than any other program, the one coming in and poaching so many great players. So even as, as you're getting better season to season to be able to like go to in-state recruits and, you know, like Izzo with his Cabillion final fours and be like, yeah, but he can't beat us. So you might as well just stay home and play. Just just stay home, Trace. (laughs) Uh, Brew, uh, give us a look towards, as we all are looking towards bringing sports back. And, and obviously there's baby steps happening to bring college sports back. Football is coming back with some, some obstacles as they've already hit, but, but hopefully football will be figuring it out and help basketball. But how do you like the look, uh, the makeup of this team as you're heading into year four with really your team now, you know, your Archie's team, um, with the exception of Al Durham, who was a, the only, I think the only leftover from the previous regime, but a hardworking kid. How does this team look, and, and how excited are you for next season? I mean, we're we, we all excited. we got a lot of experience back. we got some guys who've been through it in a little bit. So we are uh, uh, battle-tested. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a hard league. I think that's one thing I really enjoy about it. Like, every night you got to be ready. Yeah, it's a heavyweight it's, fight every night. Yeah, it's a, it's a heavyweight fight every night. No nights off, you know. 
I, when I was at drugstore, you know, I used to hear those guys, ah, oh, there's no nights off in the league. I'd be like, whatever, man. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I know I got like four teams in my league that as long as you don't mess it up, you was beating them anyway. You know what I mean? <laughs> I have no nights off. This league is so tough. Blah, 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 whatever. But I will say that it's true here. You better be ready every single night. And I think we've been battle tested. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited. You know, I, I've been doing this for 30 years. So I've been excited sometimes and it doesn't work out that way. Mm-hmm. So I think I have a different perspective than most people. Uh, if we come back with the same attitude that we had throughout the year, really at the end of the year, then yes, they look good. You know I mean, I, I think it'd be good. You, things can always happen. But of course. I think a lot of it has to do with the attitude of the guys. And I like our attitude of our guys, how they, I think they're excited about it. I think they look at it and say, and that's the most important thing right there. Forget the coach. You know what I mean? It's all about how they feel about it. If you guys feel as though we can win and we're excited about it, then we'll we'll win because we we I think we got the things in place to be able to do it. So, but you know, right. I, I feel I feel good about it. I mean, but you know, like I said, I'm not playing, so that's the thing right there. So much. Uh, I'm going to try to ask this as politically correct as I can, but so much of uh, a team is the attitude and the personalities and how much a team likes each other and, and just how much they mesh. Would you say that coming into year four with the uh, additions of some kids and some kids going away, that we've got a group of kids that has a chance to be the best personality of a team that we've had in four years? Is that, this, is that diplomatic this, enough? This, this, is the fun th- this is the fun thing about talking to fans. You know what I mean? Right? <laughs> this is the fun thing about talking with fans because you always talk about people who haven't played yet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really talking about, about people talking that Hey, this guy's going to be able to do this. Really? <laughs> Y'all think that? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know, being, a, uh, being as they call it in Philadelphia, being an old head, that's what they call you when you're an older guy in Philadelphia, they call you an old head. Being an old head, you know, you just hope that you're able to get, you know how talented they are. This is, a di- this is a different animal. Right. You're raising the stakes up. So you hope that kids come and play up to the expectations. They're as good as you think you are. It makes you a better coach. But I, I'm not looking at it from a fan standpoint because all of a sudden you get ranked because you got a guy on your team that, that uh, people think going to make that much of a difference. Because I also know, too, it don't always happen that way. Right. In but, fairness... I wasn't talking as much about the new players. I was talking about some of the old players who left. What about them? I'm saying, does this team, is there any addition by subtraction? We won 20 games this year. I think we're going to be an NCAA team, right? And uh, uh, guys, I want guys who are on the same page as everybody else. I told you, I thought Candy was the greatest teammate of all time. That's what you need to be successful. You need guys who believe in what they're doing as a group, as a team, and we are doing as a group with the coaches. That's what you need. That's what makes you successful. Uh, so if you have people who are not on that page, then they should move on. It's going to be hard for them. Right. Now, so I, that's, that's the bottom line with that right there. Now, you know, those, the, the guys that we lost, great kids. Yeah. Great kids. Good students. Right? Actually, they can play hard for us. Or you know, if they don't play hard for you, you're not winning as many games as you did. You're not making that jump when if they don't play hard for you. But in the end, 
Everybody got to be on the same page. And if you're not, that can hinder you from reaching your potential. That's the big thing right there. So that's the way I look at it. You know what I mean? Well, it I- might have been forced, right? You got, you got to, you, you, everybody got to be ready. And, and if they don't feel as though they're on the same page, then you know what? You should try something different. Right. I, I, I get that. Well, and I think a lot of the optimism looking forward, because we've had the pleasure of talking to, uh, you know, a couple of the guys coming in, is you might not as a coach or even as a player, no matter how hard you work, be able to control how really successful you can translate your game to the next level, especially as a freshman. But it just seems like these are hard-nosed kids, smart kids, kids who are already buying in and, and and that's who they are too. It's about the team. It's about winning. It's about competing. And that when you have that kind of attitude and personality stacking your whole roster, some guys maybe develop faster or better than the others, but you're, you're building this thing that's going to continue to win 20 plus games because of as much of anything, the kind of guy you're bringing in. I think at least for me, that's why I'm so optimistic. I was like, man, these dudes, these are good dudes you're bringing in. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Maybe it's all bullshit. No, I mean, no. You got to be a little lucky. We, you know, you always want to have some good character kids. I think that goes a long way. Uh, again, everybody wants to buy in. You know, it's, it's hard nowadays because even if kids are good kids, they do the right things. It's a different era because if it doesn't go the way they want, they leave. You know what I mean? So that's that's a little bit, you know, back in my day, you waited your time. Even when I even I became a head coach, you're like, no wonder, okay, I'm a, I'm a, I don't play as a freshman, I'll be ready as a sophomore. You know what I mean? They, they, don't, they don't do that nowadays. You know what I mean? It's all, you know what I mean, full steam ahead. I got to do this. You know, I got to do it right now. And if not, I'm not satisfied. So that's, 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 that's most kids nowadays. But you try to bring in a certain guy who's going to be good character kids, what we've done. And we've had some some really good, you know, really good kids in, in, in that respect. Not a whole lot of problems or anything like that other than being kids. Uh, guys who can play pretty good, who I think we, we've done a pretty good job of that. That's one reason why you're able to get the wins up every single year. Uh, now it's about, okay, since we got all these guys together, all right, let's take that next step up. And a lot of the things with that next step up is because you have had some success, all right, is, okay, how much success do you really want to have? And that's where, that's where the buy-in comes in at. Uh, the guys who really want to have a lot of success, they buy into what everybody, what you've been preaching, and you hope somebody in your locker room preaches the same thing. That's when you're able to do special things. And uh, I think that's when, you know, hopefully, that's the way it is with the guys. We, you know, we, we recruit certain guys. We're not just recruiting guys just, just to recruit them. We recruiting guys who we know that can fit in as players and can fit into the program and that can fit in here at Indiana. They're going to come here, they're going to have a good time as a student-athlete. So, uh, so that's one of the things I think uh, we, we, we know that that's one of the things that we, we, we try to do when we go out and we try to recruit. Now, the whole thing of getting those guys to do certain special things, which I think you can do here at Indiana. I think that's one of the biggest difference. I think you can do special things here in Indiana. Now, a lot of it has to do with what's your buy-in. You know what I mean? If you all want to do special things, everybody got to buy into what to what we were doing. Uh, Timmy G sent me this article about uh, how they went on an eight-week summer trip uh, back in Bobby Knight days. Uh, one reason why they changed the rule now, you can only do it four years, but they went to Europe for like eight weeks and they practiced and did all that stuff like that. 
and the players who they were, uh, Steve Isle, I think, and uh, oh. guys, they were whoever it was on there. And, um, um, and they talked about how it, although they didn't like it that they were on an eight-week trick and Bobby Knight was Bobby Knight, <laughs> it, brought, it brought the team together. Right. Yeah, you're you know, bond. bond they, it bonded them. You know what I mean? It bonded them because the, in 1986, we played an NCAA tournament. We're in the same region. They lost to Cleveland State in the first round. We lost yeah. to Cleveland State in the second round. Oh, wow. The next year, they went to – they won it. Yeah. And they talked about that bonding that got them together and able to buy into what they really wanted to do, which put them over the top. Yeah, um, that and Keith Smart and Dean Garrett. Those two things helped. I was got to have good players, though. Yeah, I mean, that, right. They could have Dean Garrett and, and, and Keith Smart and still would have lost, not right. win a national championship. You know what I mean? That's and that's one of the things about you just said it. You go, well, they added those two guys that helped them win a national championship. Well, you're gonna need to have those guys to win a national championship. But it's been a lot of guys, teams that have great players that way and don't win it. Right. Don't that's even, for sure. Don't even get to a final four. You know what I mean? That's some of the things. So it's not all about well, we got the best players or our players are good or they're highly ranked. It's about the buy-in. And a lot of that comes from the locker room within themselves. Because when times get hard. That's when they need to rally. Not necessarily the coach need to rally them. That's when they need to rally. When we went to the Final Four, right, Marcus was our leader on the floor when it came to play. When it came time for toughness, it was, the, it was down to bright. When it was time for them to talk about digging deep in the huddle because we was down and we was losing the game we shouldn't be supposed to, it was down to bright. And honestly, when you buy in, you listen to it. You don't get pissed. He calls you out for not – for not uh, um, uh, playing hard, right? You don't get pissed. I had a kid that played for me and I was a coach of the year. We won 20 games. So when I got my coach of the year award, I said, I'm going to thank Sammy Givens. He was my senior. He said, he just let me coach this year. I didn't have to worry about anything else. Mm -hmm. Man, and that's rare, right? That is rare to find. I want to thank Sammy Givens. And he, I saw him, he was sitting there. He looked at me, I said, because he let me coach this year. I didn't have to worry about anything else. So that's what you get when guys want to do special things. That's why you win 20 in a row. You know what I mean? So you got guys like that. So it's not just about having the good players. It's about the buy-in all the way around from the coaches, from the players to the coaching staff, the coaching staff to the players, and the players within themselves. If they buy into it, then this is one of those places you'll have good enough players. You can do special things. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of special things, before we let you go, what's your it's favorite? For like four hours hey, man. Hey, man. You just kept talking. You just kept talking. We're yeah. three even. I got people We're calling me asking me if I passed away or something. You okay? You okay? <laughs> Just tell them we only got two or three more hours and then we'll be done. <laughs> All right, real quick. Favorite pizza in Bloomington? Mm. Uh, I would probably say Avers. Oh, I've heard of, we have not been to Avers, but a lot of people are starting yeah. to say that. A couple of people around there kill me about it, but I like it. Uh, All right. <laughs> favorite, uh, you're going out, you're going out for a nice meal. Where's the restaurant you're going to? Uh, if I'm going out for, if, I, if I'm just going out to, you know, you know, just going out to hang out because I've hung out with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and have a meal, and, you know, have a little libation or whatever. <laughs> if I'm going out to have like a meal meal, I'm going to go to Zygrass. Everybody knows that. Yes, yes. I'm just going to go out and have a nice meal. I'm going to go to, uh, to, to Malibu. That's my play. I like, I like hanging out. It's a good place. And because I've seen it, 
what is your libation of choice? <laughs> well, you know, I'm a wine drinker. Yeah, no matter where you are. Yes, I drink like, wine. You'll go it's, to Nick's it's some bad place, wine. There's some bad places in Bloomington where they got some bad wine. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I do drink it. I do drink it. <laughs> uh, uh, favorite, I, I, go I, ahead, Ward. Go ahead. No, no, that's you, bud. No, 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 please, go. I was going to take it somewhere else before before letting this fine man get on with. Okay, his life. well, one one more than fun one because I, I we've run into each other here. I also know you like a little live music. Yes, love and, live. But but tell people what kind of music you like. Uh, you know, I like all kinds. But you know, you know, when you ask me, you know, I love Seal. Yeah, Seal's <laughs> his favorite. I love Seal, and I will give Eric credit. So he says to me. When I tell him how much, he asked me, who would I do uh, carpool karaoke with? And I said, I would do it with Seal. And he says, okay, tomorrow I'm going to send you something. And he sent me this video of Seal saying, hello. He was hanging out with Eric the next day. That's what <laughs> I said, Eric got a little juice. You know, all this <laughs> I got a juice bullshit. with Seal. It's not this bullshit, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> he sent it to me. But if I'm driving and... Uh, and I want to listen to just one per uh, two people I probably listen to the most when I'm driving. That's Steel and Stevie Wonder. There you go. But you also like country music, right? Yes, it's not bad. You know what I mean? You know, I I've seen you at a Clayton Anderson show at the Bluebird. One, I just think it's so different when you see it live. Yeah. Than just listening to it on the radio. You know what I mean? I think you know you get a different feeling. And I, I thought he he was good that night. I mean, he was. He was, was on fire. Yeah, he was. He was a good live performer. I like that. You know what I mean? I, I, I like that. That's why I'll go see. So I'll, I'll appreciate it more if I see it live sometimes than then when I just see it on the radio. Just sure. listen to it on the radio. Ward? Coach, let's, let's all just plan on the fantasy camp going down. Hopefully okay. at the allotted time. If not, if we have to push it a few weeks, fine. What should we be working on? You know, conditioning, putting up shots. You know, I want to. I want at least a shot to get drafted by by you. But I, I, I need to work. I'm gonna give you the best advice. Get in the best shape you possibly can, because yeah. you're never gonna run on a weekend like this at your age <laughs> in your life again. I right? ask Eric who used everything, massage, everything they had out there for him. He used it every now, time it, I could. It, you're not going to change your game because your game is already bad. <laughs> at least be in good shape. At least be in good shape so when we're running up and down, you don't die. If your team <laughs> <laughs> All right. Wait, bro. So you're in the draft room this year. Let's say you're in the draft room. My name comes up. Do you draft me again? Or oh, do you yeah. Just oh, yeah. I, listen, 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 listen. One, I hope you learned from last year. <laughs> One of the things that you did do was you played D. But, you know, at times, especially all you guys, you know, who think you can play a little bit, you want to play offense. So, and you know, when we watch film, I got on you about your offensive game because it's not there, right? <laughs> do what you do. Go with the known, leave the unknown alone. So if you're a good defensive player, play D, right? Yeah. And when I need you to pass, pass. You'll get a couple shots here and there but don't show me something that you can't do. <laughs> I mean, just perfect. All right, listen, I love you, Bruiser. I mean, I what you bring to the staff, what you bring to the school, what you bring to the program, 
and, and what you've brought just to, to us. You know, we've both gotten to know you a little bit and gotten to hang out with you. You're a treasure. I'm so happy you're in Indiana. My life is better for getting to know you a little bit. And I, I really I mean you that. You must have had too good of a life. And then I'm the <laughs> I just, uh, I love what you're about, man. And, uh, and thanks for sharing the personal stuff at the beginning of this too, because we can talk about basketball and have fun all we want, but there's nothing more important than what's going on with real pain and anguish in people's lives. And you helping to share a little bit of that, hopefully gives people perspective that at least makes them think, be silent, and then listen a little bit like you laid out. So thank you, Brew. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'll be honest with you guys. Remember we talked and y'all talked to me about how y'all had guys on for a long time. And I was like, who's going to be talking that long? But I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we actually were on for a long time and we're good. I appreciate y'all guys having me on. It's this is great, man. And, and, and as somebody who hasn't got to spend the time with you as Eric and representing more of the fan base that way, after three hours of this, it's like, you know, I speak for a lot of people when like, we're just going to be rooting that much harder for you because you're not, you're not just a coach right now. You, we, there's a human being here that we all really want to see succeed. So you let us know what we can do as, as podcasters, as fans, um, because we're just here to see you guys succeed and to support you in any way we can. I appreciate that, guys. Unless you go to a different school that we don't like. And I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. All right, buddy. Be good. All right, guys. Thanks. I appreciate it. Who's hysterics? Who's hysterics? Yeah. I just absolutely... I know I say this all the time, but I don't care. I absolutely love that guy. I love him. What's there not to love? And I mean, uh, you know, I have... I've heard you speak uh, at length about how much of a joy he is to be around, particularly from Fantasy Weekend. And, you know, you, you got to know the guys in a way I didn't. So even in our, our trips back to Bloomington, you know, I, I lay back a little bit because I don't, I don't have that bond and connection that that weekend provided and, you know, get to have little exchanges and get a little insight into that. But, after after three hours where I, I could have listened talk about anything for another three hours like seal we could have spent 45 minutes on seal. i would have he would i would have learned a lot more stuff and came away with a new appreciation for seal but yeah man that's that that's that's when you start feeling really good about the program is is getting to know these guys on a deeper level and and obviously we all see the way things are trending with wins and recruits but it's just like, I love these guys. I personally no. love what they're all about. And uh, and I'm just so invested in a way I never was before. I also love, it's what I said to you before, that I he is the rare person who is just comfortable with who he is. Most of the time when you do an interview like this, you know, you will say something. And it's very hard for the person that is talking to us to disagree with us. Like they don't, you don't want to disagree with the person that's interviewing you. But like, we'll lay something out and Bruiser will be like, all right, I hope, I don't know. <laughs> like, it's just, he's so honest. He's been through it. He's lived a life and dealt with things that you and I never have to deal with. Um, and, and so he's just honest and, and he's himself and he's blunt. And you can tell there is just a built-in toughness to him that that life has. His name's Bruiser. Yeah, I mean, from he, the beginning, because he survived 
you know, an intestinal uh, problem for the first six weeks of his life. So it's imprinted in who he is. It, it is. And you just want that on the team. That's why, you know, when you, you read some stupid like posts on message boards about, well, I'm not sure what this assistant coach is doing. I don't see this assistant coach talking so much. You have no idea what's going on. You have no idea what life lessons this guy is pulling a kid aside and talking to him about. You have no idea what he's sharing with the kid in private moments that resonate with that kid, that help him get, you know, over that hump or work a little harder or or change your thought process a little bit. We have no idea. And the truth is like, we still don't know, but we know how much we like these guys and how well, human they are. Well, but getting, getting into these conversations over the last year and a half, we've 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 talked about it before but it's taking on a whole new meaning of how some of these guys came up i remember aj moye the first interview we ever did uh deron davis which is one we did recently and and we haven't put out there yet you, you start to learn as a person who grew up comfortably and and as a white person in america uh, you you start to get at least a, an understanding and it's just the start but now what's gone down in these last couple of weeks and our listeners paired with us in the intro to the the Mike Roberts pod of of you and I just kind of groping in the dark for what should we be doing and thinking and feeling and then we just we got back to our regularly scheduled program and I'm so glad you set this up for right now because it's it's the race in, in college basketball and basketball in, in general has always been this elephant in the room and to a certain degree has been able to, to be in this bubble where I've even some of the stuff I've heard over the last week of like, yeah, this locker room, the floor, it's this great bubble of equality. But then a lot of those guys, players, coaches like Bruce or alike go out into a world that that bubble doesn't exist for. And, and we don't even think about that. So it was very, very generous of him to, to help enlighten us uh, in a way that we didn't even realize we didn't know what we didn't know. But I think a lot of, of us out there want to be better people and more supportive of these athletes who bring us so much joy. And, and, and like, but we've learned they're not just gladiators in the arena for us to root on for four years they're human beings that that deserve our understanding and support and and the story just makes you like you said at the end it was perfect it makes you root for them more i mean you just you get a sense of what's behind it all and i mean by the way i had no intention i, I this is what i mean again by him being comfortable in his own skin. I thought by bringing up that moment with he and Archie having that moment on the sidelines, I thought that was going to go to, yeah, people are just ridiculous. And it was nothing. It was two guys. But Bruiser was like, no, 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 no. I put him in the bad position. And then I tried to let Bruiser off the hook. And he's like, no, I yeah. did. And I, yeah. again, it's like, it's just a full grown man who is comfortable with who he is and comfortable enough to say what he did wrong, what he did right, what we say that's wrong, what we say that's right. And uh, I'm just so happy that he's at Indiana. I am. I, I, I want them to have huge success all together so that each of them, you know, because obviously I think both Mike Roberts, you know, we talked a little bit about it, Bruiser, obviously, and I'm sure Tom Ostrom, if we get the chance to talk to him, they all have ambitions to either be a head coach for the first time or be it again. 
I, I wanted to ask Bruiser about that because he did that, you know, yeah, for 20 does. years. Does he? Okay. Yeah. You know that. Okay. Yeah. I've because, asked him before. He does. I mean, ultimately, yes. I mean, look, and I think he's not at the point in his life where it's like, take the foot off the gas and just be the assistant. He likes to be the one steering the wheel and being an assistant requires a different set of skills. Yeah. Um, which makes it all the more amazing for him to like give his all and apologize to Archie and all that stuff because he knows what it means to steer yeah, the wheel. To be on the other side. And uh, I love it. I just, I want success for all of them, obviously selfishly because I want Indiana to win because it makes me happy. But yeah, I want they, these guys. Look, they all win a national championship together. Archie can pick any assistant he wants from anywhere in the country and they, they all go off and and the coaching tree of Archie starts to flourish across the nation just not in the Big Ten just in just other countries. far away and not to some other schools that we hate either right uh, but he's just a great guy he, his energy is infectious I hope that people that listen to this feel that because I mean Ward and I were just laughing and smiling the whole time it, he's well, just infectious and we have stayed away from doing Zoom or FaceTime where we see the listener because we feel like doing these just with audio has, has because we didn't have any evidence to the contrary, allows people maybe to feel less, less self-conscious. Like, what do they look like and stuff like that? But it, at least in this case, our first sort of try at this because I'm in a situation where we had to do it over Zoom, I... I it was great to see him and the, like that big infectious smile and, and, you know, the thoughtfulness in his eyes as he's taking us back in time or thinking about what's coming up. It's, it was really great. It was really great. And I, I think anybody who spends time with them, you know, high school recruit and, and parents in their living room, I'm, I'm sure it's really hard to come away from a conversation with Bruiser and not just be taken with the guy. I guess we have to release the video now. Maybe, or, uh, <laughs> yeah, pay, pay, pay-per-view, pay-per-view. Yeah. Um, we'll definitely, uh, we'll definitely get into that. I, I just love them. Uh, I, I just want Indiana basketball back. The fantasy camp, like you said, right now is on course for mid, mid to late August. I am so hoping. I've already started my dieting. I've already good, started good. my dieting, uh, trying to work out more. But uh, like Bruiser said, I'm going to leave my offensive game alone. Leave the unknown alone. That's what he said. I feel like that's a known, though. <laughs> yeah, it's fairly known. Um, so uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we did. Hope you're all safe. And follow us on Twitter at Hoosier Hysterics for the hysterics. No E, no I. But the sometimes why. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics.
Some people just know there's a better way to do things, like bundling your home and auto insurance with Allstate, or hiring someone to move your piano instead of doing it yourself. So, do things the better way. Bundle home and auto and save up to 25% with Allstate. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.